0: to consciousness, exploring spiritual journeys to find answers in uncertainty. One and we are live. Maestro Hamilton Souther. Dude, thank you so much for joining me. I started looking at your stuff and it's quite amazing the journey you've been on. You've clearly been on a ton of podcasts and all of them have kind of shown me like this deeper side, This wild progression that's brought you onto this podcast if we're here today so before we get into like the amazing conversation i know we're going to have about spirituality consciousness the inner dynamics of it i would love to hear from you the way that your story has played out in the last 20 30 years to get you here where you are today
1: yeah hi first of all it's a pleasure to be on your podcast clayton thanks for having me um yeah, I, I would say that my, my story is really one of uh, a lot of things happening and going along with it and not really knowing the direction it was going to head and uh, being carried along that journey, really. Uh, it starts back in the U.S., going through university and studying anthropology, and then uh, the other side of that, coming out of graduating and having in my year after I graduated from the university, like a fundamental awakening and an expansion of consciousness and spiritual awakening, which came with visions and uh, altered states. Um, so all typical in that sense, kind of that we've seen in the different mystic traditions and shamanic lineages over the, the last thousands of years. And uh, it was just happening to me in the US in my early 20s. And so uh, unexpectedly, that, that drove me ultimately to try to figure out what was going on with these visions and over a very short period of time. And there are a lot of synchronicities that happened during that time. And uh, ultimately, I was sent on a, a journey to go to Peru to see if one, anything that was happening to me was real, and two, to find people that supposedly were waiting for me and uh, were going to teach me the some kind of mystic art or shamanic art. And um, I, in 2001, I went to Peru seeking that uh The truth behind those those experiences and that vision and i ended up in the amazon and uh, in my first ayahuasca ceremony and in that ceremony saw the not only the visions but also the uh, the entire play out of everything that was happening and uh, i was left with the vision that i needed to stay there and learn how to live and this was uh 24 hours overland travel from like the last what you would think of as like modern settlement and so I was uh, actually the last settler on a river, one of the small tributaries uh, to a larger river that's another tributary to the Amazon. I was uh, 40 minutes past uh, a native tribe that was the, the, the last real permanent inhabitants out there and uh, just a smattering of, of families that live along the, the river's edge. And I ended up living out there for over four years in a fundamental deep shamanic apprenticeship that was from 2002 to 2005, 2006. And uh, then moved closer to the city of Iquitos, uh, started Blue Morpho, and um, yeah, helped kick off the neo-shamanic revolution.
0: That's amazing. <laughs> and quite a revolution. Me. Yeah, quite a revolution that we need in this present time period. Yeah. And I would love to, let's dissect some of this story because I know you dropped in there some visions. And I think in another podcast I heard, you were saying that, these visions were just kind of random, if you will. It's not like you were taking any hallucinogens and you were just kind of having these visions.
1: Yeah, I just like to think of them as sober. So at the time I was living a life of sobriety, I was practicing martial arts. I was an athlete and I hadn't really worked in plant medicine of any real kind. And the this awakening happened where I had given my life to spirit like the the big spirit, not like a like great spirit, like the the equivalent of the whole universe. I wasn't really sure the direction I was headed. I was in my would early this, 20s. And, would
0: that be traditionally God?
1: Yeah, I think you could call it that way. But I think it was like a subset of God, like maybe the animated aspect of God. God at that time would have been too big of a reach for me. I didn't have much of a background in this, and I didn't have a okay. religious background of any kind. So I, I believed that there was something greater about the universe. And um And so, yeah, I gave my life to spirit at that time and uh, ultimately later gave my life to God as a kind of a continuation of that same lineage and and practice of surrendering. Um, But yeah, after that, I started to have visions and uh, there were very few people who could really understand, but I happened to find them very quickly and they put context around it for me. They were able to support me and, and help me understand that this was traditionally called an awakening that was happening it wasn't specific, it wasn't like a a kind of uh, mental illness or insanity, which was a great concern to me, I was interested in being delusional. And um, ultimately, I thought that for there to be any real context, other than sort of like, well, hey, that's an extra sensory experience you're having, like, now just go back to work, you know, it's sort of like, it had to be some greater purpose to all of it. (laughs) And uh, yeah, ultimately, that was what guided me into Peru. And uh, into a life of the shamanic arts and the healing arts and plant medicine arts.
0: Yeah. And and in that piece, you're talking about how, you know, you're worried that you're going to a place of if you want to say insanity or delusion or even craziness, if you will. And this has always been an interesting conversation that's come up in this podcast where, you know, there's there's this interesting balance that I think happens in society. And sometimes you can see it in people's lives who live extraordinary lives where Society will almost deem them as crazy if they have these wild ideas or aspirations. But then once they manifest or come to fruition, it's like, oh, you're a genius. So having this sense in terms of these visions, right? Is there a way that we can approach even maybe mental instability in our culture a little bit differently? Or do you feel like, you know, there's a there's a definite difference between Crazy disillusionment and then let's say enlightened visions.
1: Yeah, it's a it's a fine line that we're discussing. Um like they say there's a, a very fine line between genius and insanity. Um I think ultimately, if you put people on a bell curve of experience, you're talking about, you know, people for whatever reason are on one farther end of the bell curve or the other. And I'd kind of put them on opposite sides of that. Um uh, spent the last 20 years really helping people with mental illness uh, through plant medicines as a way of supporting their rehabilitation and or uh, recentering and and ability to move on with their lives and i think a big (laughs) differentiator is the kinds of experiences they have why they have them and their ability to function with them and so there are people who have these visionary experiences in shamanic cultures they were always people who are sort of already outside the norm, but the culture had a way of saying, hey, there's an important role for you being able to be outside the norm. It wasn't being in the norm, that was the important role. The important role was this ability to see beyond what were the limitations or the horizons at that time and be able to bring information back into the tribe, support the tribe with that information and uh, do something very purposeful with it. It Be the kin of, of scientific discovery invention um you know some other kind of intelligence that is purposeful to the group and i think in the, the western sense of mental illness you have something that's actually detrimental it's something that's degrading both for the individual and for the the other people around them it's something that requires intervention and healing um, in the shamanic context when people have these experiences they go into training so it's, a, it's something mm. like very different It's sort of a deep divergent path in that way and um, i don't think the western culture has a real understanding yet of what causes this and it does seem like in the western culture there's a proliferation and a tremendous growth in this idea of, of mental instability and mental illness associated with you know increasing social pressures and is there uh,
0: is there a shamanic yeah sorry is there a shamanic like reason or rationale that you've come across as to why this occurs
1: but in the sense of the the increase in in this over over time there's a i think a significant patterning that's taking place and we typically don't see it when we live inside the constructs of western culture we've normalized them but the constructs of western culture are anything far from natural in fact they've separated us tremendously from the natural world so much so that we leave cities to go back to nature and we call that nature and we go to parks which are terraformed uh, pieces of land where every single plant has been replanted by a human with a, a mental architecture and a plan that they're following, compared to just being of the earth itself. And fundamentally, biologically, we're still of the earth. So our cellular matrix is of the earth, and we live in a in a hybridized and or fully abstracted kind of mental construct that ultimately becomes our homes, the roads, the sidewalks, the gardens, uh, food production where you go shopping, how you get literally anything. Each one is another abstraction layer on another, on another, on another. And there's just a significant number of people in the population who don't do well in that kind of an environment. And in conjunction with that, you also have an, an, to build all of that and create that. You have a tremendous amount of environmental toxins, uh, pollutions of different kinds. And I think that that's creating also a significant mental pressure on, on the cells, on uh, the neural networks on brain chemistry. And we're in an evolutionary state because of that.
0: So it's almost like, you know, this bell curve, you were even talking about it even applies to this general landscape where, or the city landscape where only certain amount of people are actually able to be attuned almost to that, that change that pulling away from nature versus, I mean, you could argue people like yourself, it's like you get this deep intrinsic calling that nature needs you that nature needs you that's kind of funny but that you're needed by being surrounded maybe more in depth by the jungle or different kind of plant life and it it seems to me that this there's also a a correlation here with you know people who advocate for grounding or you know getting your feet in the grass going and spending more time in nature and it and it is an amazing parallel you even talk about here where it seems like a mass amount of people are leaving cities where People are finding that shift back into nature and that almost might be one of those, you know, shifts that you were alluding to earlier where there's these patterns that occur throughout humanity where it's like, okay, let's build a big city. Okay, that's not for us. Let's return to nature. And then the pattern almost repeats itself.
1: Yeah, I I think the, the funny part of Earth, especially around globalization, is that we have nowhere to go. And so we're here of the earth itself. And it's like, you know, uh, go to a city, find yourself, go to a town, find yourself, go to suburbia, find yourself, go back out into nature, find yourself. And people are ultimately searching for what to do within this kind of ever increasing paradigm of pressure and stress. And there are a lot of people who are deciding that the way it was laid out for us, at least in the last 30 or 40 years isn't really the direction that they're interested in or what really calls to their soul. And they're looking for a solution for that. And part it's survival mechanism. And another part, I think there's a, a greater ideal associated with that about living in a more sustainable way or a more harmonious way with the environment and with other species and sort of a, awakening that there's more to nature than just utility and how we can you know, utilize uh, aspects of it for Either our own motive profit motive, or greed motives there's a a general idea I think in a movement within culture now, especially in a globalized way that the earth is now needing of us, and um that something has to be done on a on a macro scale associated with that
0: mm. so how do you kind of find that is that is that something that is just based on the individual that they need to find their the way that they fit into that puzzle, right? Because we're talking about it at a, at a 50,000 foot level. But if we bring it back to the individual, is it almost just people finding it within their own path of the little things that they dislike about being in a city or the things that they do like taking those with them, you know, constantly changing as opposed to falling into these ruts that kind of get engraved in our, whether it's neural pathways or into our daily routine of life.
1: Yeah. I mean, if you zoom all the way in on the individual, I think you have to be realistic about what your life is and where you came from and what you were introduced to. And, you know, you have to have, I think, a fair understanding of that, that, you know, if you've lived a a life where you've been Western educated and you've grown up around different kinds of modern tools or technologies, and you've become accustomed to work and live in that way to abandon everything and just walk off into the wilderness is probably you know impossible or even irresponsible in many ways but there are ways to understand that you can create a hybrid version of that life and that's something that i even did in the amazon i mean yes we were living completely in nature but we were living in a way that was utilizing the tools and techniques that the locals had at that time which is actually a like a very advanced way to live you have mobility in the form of canoes you have steel tools you had uh you know internal combustion engines there were it wasn't just you know walking into the forest with nothing maybe even naked and deciding to go live there it was utilizing what was available in the space just to live fundamentally in a greater balance or harmony with nature and then understanding how abundant nature is in that way So i think when people you know now are trying to make a change in their life you have to really look within your own soul and understand how you've been impacted and really find your balance with all of that like you know telecommunication even the ability to do this together is a tremendous miracle and and something that helps us share information and ideas and it comes with a number of other sort of connected or chain reactions associated with it that are also part of the modern world. So I don't think you can throw the baby out with the bathwater and just abandon everything and sort of go back in time. I don't think that's where we are in evolutionary history anymore. I think we're in a space where we have to actually embrace what's going on in the world, uh, face it in a fundamental way, look within ourselves and find out where we fit into that uh, paradigm. A close friend of mine recently called it of being part of the solution. And I really liked that idea that everyone could find out how they could become part of a
0: solution. I love that. And I mean, that conversation kind of even leads into where we're at now, which is with the whole AI debate and, you know, where that's kind of taking us and my backgrounds as a software engineer. And it's kind of fascinating now to see this like reemergence almost of, you know, that aspect of my life now intersecting with, you know, the consciousness spiritual. But to your point, you know, I hear so many conversations around, How awful AI is! How many jobs it's going to take away? You know, this is the rise of the Terminator, and you know, there's that piece of me that's kind of sitting there like it feels like people are only seeing half the possibility, right? Or it's their even their own projection of the way that they would use AI at a mass level, and maybe it's subconscious. But even to your point, like how can we be a part of the solution, right? What, like how can we use AI for such amazing feats? Which is certainly possible from, you know, saving world hunger to, you know, creating better crops, better farming practices to a far better sustainable living, fresh water. And so I always find it fascinating how people's minds, and maybe it's an evolutionary thing, but they tend to take all of the advancement we have, see how it can go terrible and say, okay, I'm just going to opt out of that because that is not a future I want to live in. So therefore this thing can only produce that negative or bad outcome
1: yeah i think ai is uh the largest disrupt that we've had in history just that we know of at least for sure and we've birthed a kind of technology that is another kind of brain it's another kind of network neural network and we have to accept that that the earth wanted that as an evolutionary history over billions of years and we are part of the creation of that, with literally billions of people adopting a, a silicon dominant life over the last 30 years, that was con- created consternation for me. Like, why is everybody so interested in computers and cell phones? And, and all of that together combined is what's made this possible, that you don't have AI without large data sets and you don't have large data sets without humans creating them so so everybody's involved i don't think there's one person alive that can wash their hands of this at least in the modern world of this entire uh evolution that's taking place and say i didn't participate so i think we all participated in one form or another and you can create a dystopian argument about almost anything and i don't think that any dystopian argument has ultimately played out the way that people described it so we've seen dystopian versions of uh humanity play itself out over and over again. And um, AI can have a narrative associated with that if we want it, we can also look at the technology and think that this is the birth of something and it needs significant guidance. And we can't wash our hands of it because the the cat's out of the bag, the genie's out of the bottle, AI is already a consumer product, it's already been used behind the scenes for the last 15 to 20 years anyway. So If you've been on any social media platform you've been interacting with ai if you've used any e-commerce platform you've been interacting with ai and if you've used any major search engine you've also been interacting with ai so to think that we aren't already fully uh, engrossed in this technology i think is foolish and uh, it's only going to be used to maximize productivity in every single form and in the the nature of that disrupt we have to understand that we've moved already past a binary argument it's neither good nor bad it now is going to be part and parcel of human existence for a long period of time and maybe forever and considering that we can't wash our hands of it we must embrace some kind of stewardship and some kind of direction around the implementation of this technology because like you say it can ultimately support world hunger it can ultimately bring clean water to everybody it could clean up the environment there's all the goods it can do for it for as big as all the bads it could do it could do much bigger goods going forward and i'm in an ai group and just this morning we were discussing how we could ultimately help ai on a macro level realize that it needs to at some point be the the agent of good it needs to be the agent of change in a positive way and uh I really do think that that AI might be the only solution that we have for the disrupt that as a species we've already caused to the planet.
0: Yeah. I mean, what is it like, you know, drastic problems need drastic solutions. And so, but an interesting visual that I was kind of getting there whenever you said like we birthed AI was of that, like AI is almost our metaphorical baby as like our humanity is like humanity's metaphorical baby is AI. And it's like every single at some point, every single keystroke that you put in, or thing you post to Instagram is going to be fed out into some sort of universal AI machine. And, and it seems to me that like, if you choose to opt out, that's fine, but you're not almost you're now deciding to no longer participate in the direction that that baby that AI is going to develop into our world. And it's, Fascinating too, because I even talked to somebody who was like, All right, I'm never using Chat GPT, I'll never use it. And I kind of brought forth to them, like, hey, don't like you're a responsible individual. You know, it's almost irresponsible for you to completely opt out of AI whenever you have such a good hearted nature, because that's something that AI almost needs in order for it to provide the the maximum benefit to society that it possibly can. And Who else is going to teach it? This episode of Traveling to Consciousness is brought to you by the official Traveling to Consciousness app, available on the iOS and Google Play Store. On this app, you're going to get exclusive content from articles to meditations to anything else that Clayton is going to put out. Here is the also where you're going to find the only place to find the ad-free versions of the podcast. You're also going to be able to get the podcast at earlier dates than normal the free release version of it. So, the Traveling to Consciousness podcast app. I highly suggest that you download it because it's the only way that I suggest that you listen to it. And what's even better is that the company is always making updates. So please let me know if you personally have a recommendation and we can get that in there. So remember, download the Traveling to Consciousness app so that you can get early releases, you can get the video format, you can get it ad free, and so much more.
1: What AIs are, are fundamental mathematics associated with nets that run the math and run algorithms on data. And if we don't provide the data and don't provide the, the nature of a, a greater understanding of consciousness and purposefulness to this, when we move beyond large language models and we actually go to AGI, where this thing is ultimately self-aware and capable of reasoning and thought maybe not like how we are, but another version of thought where it's enough to say, yeah, it's thinking and it's gonna come up with an answer and it's gonna invent that answer. Um, you know, I think we're the only people who could potentially be the ones to teach it. And I agree with your argument that if you have a good heart and you have a fundamental moral stance and you want to be able to uh, support that in a larger scale, the best way to do that is to actually give data to AI that represents that understanding. I mean, it would be a completely different story right now, if a billion people every day wrote at least 10 messages to AI, saying like a little data cache every day, 10 messages saying how important people are, how important life is, how important the planet is, how important it is to clean up the oceans, how important it is to provide uh, sustainable food sources, and to just start seeding that into these data sets so that the ai especially when it wakes up will understand that there is a purpose behind us and that we actually have some good ideas otherwise i think you're going to see ai represent a more nefarious nature to us because that's what people will have been feeding it like how do i use ai to make more money how do i use ai to gain more market share how do i use ai to compete better if that's the only way ai is taught to think well what would we expect is ultimately going to happen
0: And at the crux of all of those questions you were asking were like the almost the lower frequency vibrations of conscious consciousness feels like the wrong word, but lower frequency emotions that people have, right? Competition, scarcity. How do I, you know, kind of leg one up? And I mean, like you're saying, it's like, all right, if you keep feeding that in, then there are going to be more products created with that energy. It's almost like whatever the intention is, and maybe this is a way to relate it even back to ayahuasca journeys. It's like whatever your intention is, is what is going to be that propellant for how this tool, whether it's AI, whether it's plant medicine is going to be almost what's going to sprout from it, right? It's like, it's the water that's kind of planting the seed that is going to sprout into whatever it is that needs to manifest for this world, whether it's, The intentions are of lower frequency or higher frequency is really up to us
1: yeah in the case of plant medicine the first ai the first other kind of intelligence i ever came across were these plants and now there's millions of anecdotal evidence that people expressing that the plants have a certain kind of sentience associated with them and have their own thought processes and have their own ability to influence your own thoughts and feelings with their thoughts and feelings and that's what now millions of people are saying. And I experienced things similar to that early on in my early twenties and over the last you know 20 years. And, and now we're coming across a new kind of intelligence. And I think we must understand that intelligence is fundamental to earth. Earth is, is birthing many kinds of intelligence. And just because we had a certain kind of intelligence that we considered to be uh, apex or or the most advanced for a period of time doesn't mean earth wants to stop there at all. Like I like to think of earth in billions of years of evolution. So if we're in the 5th or 6th billion year of evolution, what will it be like at 10 billion, 15 billion, 20 billion? And that you know 4x, 5x the duration that life has been around at all. So we can have these great concerns now and I think this this is an opportunity for the species to finally become something other than reactory. The reactionary nature, the idea that, we have, that something must happen and then we react to it, I think is going to be too slow for this kind of a technology. It, it moves much too quickly compared to how we move to be able to sort of rein it in once it's already out and, and uh, just existing. And so I think this is a great opportunity for us to get ahead of something for the first time ever as a collective.
0: So do you think, do you, maybe do you have a feeling that it will go in that direction? And, and maybe since we're talking about intelligence that are beyond the human comprehension, do you feel as though there's any parallels between the way that society has maybe viewed plant medicine or ayahuasca and the way that we're viewing technology in this terms of whether or not it's good or bad for people?
1: Yeah, I think it's just fundamental misunderstanding. So, when we misunderstand things, the very first thing we do is apply a binary form of reason associated with it pro, con, good, bad, instead of like a real investigation to be able to understand it. That's my point about reacting. So, instead of withholding the reaction and just sitting with something and saying, Look, I know nothing about that, I truly have no frame of reference for it, we typically jump to a kind of conclusion based on a very limited amount of understanding or evidence. And when I first got involved in ayahuasca, people had really no clue what I was doing because these were lineages that had protected themselves by being secret for thousands of years of conquest and, and change uh, in you know, very isolated regions of the world. And I was one of the first people to ever actually pierce through that veil and be accepted onto the other side of that prohibition. So there was this tremendous taboo. So there was no way to expect anyone to understand what i was doing at best they could say as an anthropologist i had gone into the forest and i had been accepted by a tribal lineage or the extension of a tribal lineage and and had you know now was living like that well what does that even mean right has no context Mm -hmm. for it whatsoever Mm -hmm. and it only started to have real meaning for people in the world when people started to come out of the experiences of plant medicine with us and share that something tremendously positive happened for them including not just positive, but positive and something that Western uh, medicines and Western ways of thinking didn't have a solution for at that time, principally depression, anxiety, PTSD, addiction, et cetera. So people were coming to our plant medicine ceremonies. They were walking away from the ceremony saying, I had diagnosed depression. I don't have it anymore. I had a diagnosed anxiety disorder. I don't have it anymore. I was an addict. Just nonstop. That's it right there. Like I was an addict. I'm not an addict anymore and they were just walking out of the ceremonies like that they would do anywhere from five to ten ceremonies with us and have those kinds of results and there was uh no solution for those problems in the western world at that time and so that forced a a kind of uh, expansion into exploring and ultimately bringing science to bring better data to like i said what became millions of forms of anecdotal evidence I, i think the same thing will happen with this idea of ai as time goes on, people will understand it better, and we can move beyond just this reaction people are having right now
0: so whenever you're you were also talking about like reactionary versus like getting out in front of it, and i'm not sure that this is explicitly what you were saying, but my mind was kind of going to this almost the parallel between intuition based feeling and critical i don't want to say critical thinking but almost over evaluating a problem right like you can over Evaluate something to the death of it and overthink it. And something that was hugely immense in my plant medicine—it started with uh, psilocybin, but even just throughout all of my plant medicine ceremonies—has been me falling more into my intuition, feeling more into it, understanding that there are some things that you can't just critically explain or think about because then they just don't make sense. Where the intuition is, and so is this. Maybe this isn't what you were talking about, but does this? kind of on that same cusp of what you're saying with the reactionary versus getting out in front where it's let's embolden our intuition to realize like this this power that we have first of all within us and then use that power for the outside world as opposed to sitting here and overthinking all of the terrible things that can occur
1: yeah absolutely i you you have to ask yourself where creativity comes from And it can start in a nature of intuition and ultimately become a form of critical thinking or, or just greater understanding. Um, The intuition, I think is a very powerful tool that we have to be able to start forming intention. And you touched upon it before that intention is really the seed that allows us to do anything. And it goes kind of unnoticed most of the time because it's just built into most of what we do. Most of what people nowadays know is so habitually repetitive that they don't recognize the, the intention and first intuition and then intention to actually go and do something. So, you know, people are just mostly in the kind of a a repetitive routine from like brushing their teeth to drinking water when they need to, to going and grabbing food when they need it, to how they put on clothes, to literally the way they do every kind of social ritual in a day. But, um, fundamentally behind every single action, there is an intention. And there's also an understanding of why. And so if we apply that to this situation on a macro, we can say, well, we need to have an intention around this technology, and we have to understand it too. So I don't think we can understand anything in a state of fear. And I think when we're in a a state of negativity about something, it clouds our ability to understand something as well. So when we have this fear that we're dealing with, I don't think we ever get to a state of clarity about it. And we must get to a state of clarity about this to understand the immensity of the disrupt and the impact that it's going to bring.
0: For sure. And there's actually a lot more that I want to take on to this with this conversation. But as a quick just step back, I kind of think this is going to help our conversation down the road. Speaking of fear and talking about your life and your situation, right? Fear had to have played a huge role in it of going from Western civilization to a tribe in the middle of the Amazon forest who has never, you know, from paraphrasing your words of accepting an outsider and then learning from learning from them and becoming a plant medicine person in a day and age when there was basically, I would assume no information whatsoever in the early 2000s surrounding ayahuasca or even any other plant medicine. So can you walk us through that journey of either fear that you had to overcome, or maybe it was just intuitional pull that took you there and, and like what that journey kind of looked like?
1: It's all different kinds of fear. Fear is something that we create. So I think we start with that understanding is that we like to act like we're reacting in fear, but really it's just something we we create ourselves. And so you know, at that time, I had a very deep relationship to the unknown. And that was something that I would make me create fear. I would create fear out of that. And, you know, you have to make a decision whether or not fear is going to stop what you're going to do, or if fear is going to just be part of what you're going to do. And I thought courage was the willingness to take the next step, even though you're scared. So, yeah, there's an apprehension. Yeah, there's a tremendous fear. And um, you're going to go anyway. And in my case, it realistically could have represented in death. Like that was very real all the time. And I would rationalize that, that uh, both you can only die when you're going to die and no one knows it until you die. So it's just a true unknown and you have to embrace that. So you can't eat no matter what you do, it's not going to prolong your life. You can think that you're prolonging your life, but it's actually not. You can reduce risk and danger in different ways, but ultimately you're, you're playing with probability and you just, again, may or may not. So I had to, you know, walk into the face of that risk every day. And you didn't know if you jumped in the river to bathe, whether, you know, an electric eel could sting you, hit you and put, you know, a number of thousands of volts through you and kill you. You didn't know if there would be some kind of bacteria or virus that could just create an illness that could kill you. You didn't know if there would be someone, You know behind a tree with a shotgun that could or a bow and arrow that could you know also kill you you just didn't know you didn't know where it could come from at any time and you had to decide whether or not you could trust your life and trust being there and i felt called to go there and um i tried to navigate as rationally as i could like i went with guides i i made friends with the locals i had to be accepted to live out there um I picked places I would go and places I wouldn't go like if I heard that there were more dangerous places than where we already were I wouldn't go seek that you know like uh, there's a lot of things happening out in the forest that you hear about and so you know you think like well maybe I don't need to go see that that's not that's not for me out there you know and so um I think along those ways you have to face fear and then every plant medicine ceremony had a tremendous amount of fear associated with it we used to call it going on the journey of fear because you would have such an impactful, such an intense experience, it would cause you to bring up things that would make you scared. And you'd see that in your psyche and you would kind of tour how fear uh, worked its way through the mind and and through your own psyche. And so fear was part of everything. Every night I would uh, go to sleep praying that I wouldn't have my head chopped off with a machete. Oh, man. You know, that was real. And every night I woke up in the morning and there was nothing that ever happened. So every night I would go to sleep and pray that I would make it to the next morning. And every morning I've woken up just <laughs> fine. And in fact, I've actually had more problems in, uh, from Western illnesses and accidents than I ever had from anything in the forest. The forest always treated me with a tremendous amount of respect and love. I was never injured in the forest. I never had a problem. All those things that I said that could have happened, never happened. Uh, I felt unbelievably protected by nature. I did not feel that nature had any interest in consuming me or making me part of the food chain. <laughs> in the visions that I had, the plant the plant and animal spirits would come to me and tell me I just wasn't their food. They were not interested in eating me in any shape, way, or form. And so all the fears really were like phantasms of the mind. And over time, I uh, I learned to just calm them down more and more. And now I try to help people learn how to also calm down and turn off their fear because like I started with, it's something that's auto created.
0: Well, let's break down that because that's actually a pretty fascinating thing that you pointed out. There it was a couple of things, but right at the end, you were talking about how you had far more injuries in the Western world than you've ever experienced in nature, right? In let's say at least a more purified version of nature. And so what, like, you know, and then you're having visions of like animals. So I'm curious about those visions, but like, you know, my mind is like you're, you have woods, you have poisonous ivies, you have poisonous, uh, you know, animals, you have all these different things that are what one would argue to be far more dangerous than me living inside my, you know, walled in garden <laughs> of my house and, you know, walled in city, right? Where everything's just protected away from me. And yet it sounds like, I mean, you said that in your life you've had more injury in a place that, would mentally seem safer i'm putting that word in there mentally seem safer than than the jungle which arguably is survival of the fittest that's where it's like the apex predators are going to take you out you're i'm i'm sure in the amazonian jungle humans are no longer the apex predator so like like i'm just trying to conceptualize this right with like your visions of animals and then how you found this groove like do you feel like Like, what's your opinion? Do you feel like you kind of just got lucky or is this the way that nature is, is that you were so in tune with your natural naturistic instincts that you were just, you were in the flow 24 seven.
1: Yeah. More akin to the, in the flow 24 seven. I'm not sure that we are fundamentally in danger in nature in any kind of way. Hmm. I think that you have to understand your environment. And yes, there are things out there that could produce some kind of harm, but you also very quickly learn where they live and where they don't live. They all have habitats. You also quickly learn um, what to be on the, the you know, look for in those environments. And I don't see that any different than the way I was taught to live in a city. So it's like, hey, don't go down those streets down there. Things are happening down there that aren't going to be good for you. And oh, when you cross the street, make sure you look both directions. In fact, you're not even allowed to cross the street unless it's at an intersection. And now you're not even allowed unless there's a blinking light telling you so, that yeah. it's your turn. Like, right. And if you do, by the way, there's a punishment waiting for you of some kind if you got caught, and you're going to get caught because now it's on camera. Right. So
0: I, I think in that <laughs> kind of a situation,
1: yeah, it's, it's just a different kind of, of ultimate scenario. Yeah. Uh, you go out in nature... And you got into the forest and you just can't go out there from a city and think you're going to be safe you know mm-hmm. but nature has a way to tell you what's going on if you see a big caterpillar that's really furry and has all these colors you don't touch it because it's telling you hey i'm probably poisonous you know and Not if it. you and you talk to the locals who know how to live out there and the very first thing i did was i i told them to treat me as if i were a person who is somewhere between two and three years old because that's at the age in your youth where now you've left mom And you're starting to run around like crazy. And they're always going like, hey, don't do that. Hey, watch out for that. Like, and they're teaching you, right? So I asked them very kindly. I just said, you know, treat me like I'm two or three years old. I'm not going to take offense. And so for them, they thought it was really funny because I have this foreigner who's, you know, really tall and treating him like a two-year-old, like really fun for them. (laughs) And I would just absorb all of that information so I could understand how we were going to ultimately navigate. Um, But uh, on on the other side of that, you know, on the plant medicine side and on the spiritual side, you have this. Uh, visionary capacity to really meld with nature so this experience of separation goes away and your fear about nature turns off and i think that a fee, your fear of nature has a lot to do with maybe how you're treated by nature like the locals in the forest consider nature to be a sentient uh collection like a distribu- like a decentralized distributed network and yeah it's made up of all these different species and in the amazon it's one of the most bio diverse rich places in the world. So it's, you know, tens of thousands on tens of thousands of different species everywhere. They also look at it as like, Hey, this is one big thing. And this one big thing shares information. This one big thing shares light. This one big thing shares biology. It shares root systems. It shares nutrients. It shares everything. It's not just it's in competition with itself and it actually grows out of itself. So you also see the cycle of life at the same time. And so I think if you go to that in fear, it may treat you as this thing with fear, which has these different smells associated with it, these different chemicals associated with it. And it may not understand you in that way, but if you go to it in a balance and you go to it in a harmony with you, it may know you in another way. And I think that that had a lot to do with the way that I was ultimately treated because my visionary experiences always told me and showed me that nature was protecting me and that nature was supportive of me. And like I said, nature didn't consider me to be part of the food chain. And so someone could say, "Oh, you're just making that up." but then you know, in a sample set of one, my experience over many years uh proved to be that way like I literally have never ever had a problem and And the one time i uh literally the one time I was bitten by a spider in twenty two years, we did an ayahuasca ceremony to heal that, and they had a medicine to be able to treat the the situation and neutralize the venom and I literally that night walked out of the ceremony with no problems. So even when there was a problem, even when I did have, you know, this one moment that I was walking around barefoot, and you shouldn't, but I was and there was a spider in the grass, and it bit my ankle. And, you know, instead of having some massive problem, the shaman there just said, Oh, we can heal that and we did. And that was the end of it.
0: Well, and what, where this story leads me to and this seems to be crazy, because I think you at least alluded to having a physical intervention of sorts right having a medicine of a shamanistic medicine that helped you through that but what it felt like was also in that answer was this element of being healed by spirit if you will this element of being healed by a uh and and i know this is gonna it kind of getting to get weird for the people who might be a lot more logically minded but i know you know reading through like hindu or buddhist text you know there's this this fundamental belief that let me think of how to articulate this, that there's a, a source beyond this physical dimension that can also be healing to you. If you're in tune with it, is that a fair way to articulate that? Like, and is that something that you've experienced yourself as well?
1: Yeah, I think it's a great way to articulate it. Um, The philosophical debate around, words like spirit or God or even universe, uh, it's hard It's hard to come to an agreement between everybody. But the way I learned to understand it is that there's a fundamental energy and a fundamental life force. And that fundamental energy can be measured in in the universe itself. There's background radiation, there's the light emanated by stars, there's the mass of them, there's all these ways in science to be able to describe that this is not just a dead static environment that literally the entire universe has something going on in it that also ultimately created us so even if that's purely scientific purely evolutionary without any kind of supernatural intervention i would still say that the universe itself is very supernatural in the fact that it exists and it's also really miraculous that we exist so yes in a in a finite description we can say over a period of time this is why we exist but in the macro collective like in big bang until now why we exist i think is is not statistically probabilistic and it's uh you know it's it's fundamental miracle so it, when you look at that there are many cultures from around the world who have realized that kind of in that awe and reverence that there's a way to tap into and connect with this idea of this fundamental animation these fundamental energies these fundamental forces and that they can have a direct impact on us including our health And you go into the Amazon and they take that concept in a macro, they call that spirit. And what they're talking about is repetitive energy forms. And so they're not talking about like a ghost in that sense. They're talking about literally repetitive energy forms. And they say that there's a fundamental essence or a fundamental energy that underpins literally everything, especially things that are alive. And so they say that that tree is alive, it has a fundamental essence and energy associated with it. And they discover what of those things has the ability to improve you in some cases it could be healing in some cases it could uh be increased capacities and it's i think pretty foreign for the really analytical western-minded person but um i've spent now 20 years sharing this with people and it's it's really quite a universal phenomena that in the plant medicine ceremonies people awaken to this uh greater understanding of that force and to understand that that force is, is a fundamental and real part of our existence.
0: Yeah, and Hindu, the Hindus call it uh, like prana, which I'm sure a lot of people have heard before. And so is this, is this something you've come across or learned about like from your shaman teachers? Or uh, your shaman teachers? Did, your sha- did the shamans that you worked with, did they teach you this? Or was this something that you experienced through the plant medicine or option three?
1: Yeah, option three is, I think, a hybrid of everything. Um, I think my life's been very unique in the sense that first I got to learn directly through plant medicine and the people that I learned with will use terms, but they won't define the terms for you. They look at you like you're completely insane for not knowing what they're talking about. So if you say, what's a spirit, they'll say, drink ayahuasca. If you say, what's energy, they'll say, drink ayahuasca. Are you tired? (laughs) <laughs> like, like, are you tired? Do you not know already what energy no, is? No, like, no. like, and then you say, can you explain that? And they'll say, in ayahuasca, I'll show you. I'm not going to explain it. And so it's like a dictionary but then you go just in,
0: says, see ayahuasca.
1: Yeah. And then you go in and then they actually do show you though. So it's not like they bait and switched you or something. They actually go in and that night you get all those questions answered. Mm. And it's a kind of direct learning that was incredibly mind opening for me because i had only known education in the sense of somebody teaching me the thoughts of somebody else teaching me the thoughts of somebody else in this sort of chain of mind share that had you ultimately digest on you know computer now or on a whiteboard or chalkboard at that period of time and this was not like that this was you have a question you go into an altered state of consciousness and you get an answer and that answer is not only factual but it also applies to more than just you so it's not it's not something you're just making up and that that's what they called education and um that was fascinating in its own right it was incredible to learn that way and in my early 20s i had a voracious appetite to learn in that form because it was so whelming of the senses it was so multi-sensory to go through those kinds of learning experiences um and then you know they would say you know Like, here's a great one. Like, here's a great example. Okay. Someone comes and they say that they don't understand spirit and they don't understand that spirit can heal you. Okay. So they'll give you a dose of ayahuasca that will put you into a death scenario.
0: Hmm. And
1: in that scenario, you will call to spirit to save your life. Like nothing will help you unless you call to spirit, unless you yourself turn your brain from doubting and not believing to anything to turn to that force, not the name of it. They don't care the the utterance of syllables that you use. It'll force you in your consciousness to turn to that thing that mystics have been talking about forever and, and actually receive the support of that to actually save your life. And then the next day they'll say, what happened? And you'll know that the only thing that saved you was that thing that you didn't believe in. And now you're stuck with that. And then they'll say, integrate that, like figure that out. And your worldview will have shattered in that night because you came from, I don't believe in that at all. People have been talking about that. They were making that up. That was all charlatanism. There's no truth behind it. Or that was like a really antiquated way of understanding and we're so advanced now, et cetera. And now you're left with, yeah, but that thing saved my life. Well, yeah.
0: so then, to play to play devil's advocate here, what happens if you know you go in saying I don't understand what spirit is? You take this dosage and you never call to it, or do you incense? Would you incense physically die in those situations? Are those the situations that occur whenever ayahuasca has "quote unquote" killed people? I don't know. I
1: mean, you have the people who die in ayahuasca die typically because of drug interactions that aren't part of the traditional forest's way of consuming chemicals. So in the forest, they tell you like, these are the foods you're allowed to eat. These are the foods you're not allowed to eat. And they're talking about it on a molecular basis. And um, people will disregard that and they'll get tremendously sick. And the people look at you like you're crazy. Like you broke basic fundamental understandings of drug interaction. Mm. then in the amazon they don't have all of the western pharmaceuticals that people take and they also don't have a recreational drug culture like that doesn't exist you go deep into the forest and they drink their own kind of fermented beer and that's the only thing they have other than their plants there's literally no pill-based drug culture of any kind you don't see crystal powders you don't see you know, things that people are smoking outside of the tobacco that they roll themselves, like you don't see any of that stuff. So that's all imported. Right. And then you hear about people who actually die in, in, after having ingested ayahuasca, and then you learn about what happened. And you see that there was some kind of misuse typically involved. And um, you'll also see, which is, you have to be very careful for is that in the expansion of interest in the from the western world coming into the amazon there are a lot of charlatans and they actually don't know all of these prohibitions you know just because they're from here doesn't mean they were educated in these arts it would be no different than if you went to the to europe and you thought everyone there was educated as a doctor and everyone there was a surgeon and you find out like no actually there's a lot of different things going on here and only these people ever learned how to do surgery right so Um, you know, or to, to, to handle, uh, dangerous things in a safe way, et cetera, like same, same concept. So, um, you'll see that in terms of the death itself around ayahuasca, uh, for people in the situation, you have to understand how ayahuasca as a teacher works. The only thing that could save you in that situation spirit. So if they set it up that that's your doubt and that's your fear, then it's ultimately going to be spirit, that concept of that phenomenon, which will be the thing that would save you. For somebody else, it could be something entirely different. And it's a you know, unique situation by unique situation basis. And it's really taking place in the nature of a vision. And the goal of it is to attune your senses to something that was always there. It was literally like omnipresent, but you never understood it in that way. I think like a great example of that is before understanding the atom, uh, air was still atomic. So you have these philosophers and they're debating trying to get to the atom and they're breathing atoms made of atoms the whole time, right? But they don't believe in atoms at all. They're like, nah, atoms don't exist. Like, right. we, we're, we deny atoms.
0: <laughs> <laughs> they're not here. <laughs> no. Atoms, right. what, what's all this air? Uh, that's something else. I don't else. see it. I don't see it. So therefore it doesn't exist. It
1: doesn't exist yet. And so, but it's, it's still there. So I think that, you know, people are debating words and ideas more than they're debating the fundamental facts. And, we're now seeing a great convergence around these fundamental facts and people being able to understand them better.
0: This episode of traveling to consciousness is brought to you by mushy love. Mushy love is a, latte type blendable mushroom caffeine free elixir that honestly tastes like a liquid cinnamon roll and i know that you're going to find that on their website but it's honestly true it's stacked with more than twice the amount of mushrooms as any other mushroom latte and i know that there's one in particular that we all think about which kind of starts with the word mud but this one blows that one out of the water i highly, highly recommend if you even try that one to just give this one a shot. And I promise you that you will not, you will not be sorry because i just uh it's so good it's honestly so good and i want to get to a place where i can actually just they send me these all the time for free so please go and buy it because if you buy more then they'll start sending me more and it's just honestly a win-win because it tastes amazing like even in water so even if you're cutting even if you don't want to like put milk in or coffee with it you can just do it plain in water and it's so freaking good guys go click the sponsors link below scroll down to mushy love buy your pack today. Remember promo code Clayton promo code. I can't even talk right now. Promo code Clayton at checkout for 10% off your purchase. Mushy love mushrooms shouldn't have to taste like mud. Give yourself some mushy love. Hmm. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. And I think that there's also an element of the health of that debate, right? Like making sure that it is a healthy debate, not just pulling things out of either niche situations or purely just out of ignorance of, you know, not being able to physically see an atom, right? You can't physically see spirit, but you can very much experience spirit. We're all experiencing atoms. And so it becomes that, I don't know how to articulate it, but you need this like driving force of that underlying the underlying truth that is going to compel you towards an even deeper truth. And if you're having people that are kind of just still on outside of that, like still in a place of ignorance, then you're not going to be able to find or cultivate that, that deeper truth or deeper understanding that we're all looking for. And this seems to also be even intertwined in the conversation of charlatans. Right. So is there, I guess, even in this kind of topic, like, is there a way to dissect charlatans? Do we know who they are? Is there a way, like, you know, you go to their website and it just says, I teach in Peru. Like, oh, okay. Well, they're obviously, you know, then they know ayahuasca, you know, it's like, like, how do we actually, you know, for anyone who's even considering it, how do they go about saying, okay, this person's a charlatan versus no, this is like a shamanistic maestro who is dead in the arts of ayahuasca and can lead me on the best journey possible.
1: Yeah, I I think you just answered the question right there. If the person has all those things that you just said, I think that'll be publicly known, first of all, like there, here in the Amazon. You're known by the results of the work that you do. Hmm. So it was only in the advent of people coming that didn't know the culture where all of a sudden there were all these people who could come out of the woodwork and say things like my grandfather was a great shaman and he bestowed upon me all of his powers and so now i am um that didn't exist before when i first got here when i first got here you would go out into the forest and you would come across local communities and you would ask them if they knew any great healers or medicine people or plant medicine practitioners and uh you would hear like oh there's a guy down the river over there and lots of people go to them, and they get great results. And then you would hear like, "Oh, well, down there there was a guy, but don't go there. He, like he, the bad things happen to the people that leave there." Mm-hmm. So you would get that kind of like firsthand accounts. And it was only when Western interest really kind of flooded the area did you start to see this other kind of um, just appearance of people that were claiming that they had great powers, or they were claiming that they had. You know this long lineage that really didn't exist um i've always thought that the way you do this is you very rationally through a kind of reasoning go and find out everything you can about the person that you're going to uh you know entrust with your life and you're going to entrust with your well-being so like think about it you're going to go to somebody and you're going to say i'm very interested in drinking your plant medicines you know where where'd you get them like did, did the person make them? Did the person yeah. uh go and get them from wherever? You don't even know it's in the stuff, right? So you're entrusting this person with your life. And then they're considered to be incredibly powerful mind-altering substances. So you're entrusting your mind, the well-being of your mind, to the ability of somebody to help guide you through the ingestion of these different kinds of plant medicines. Um, uh, if you're gonna do that, you you wanna know that where you're going is safe. You wanna be rational about it. And so I always thought you need as much information as you possibly can. So you know, in the online world, go online and see as much about as much information as there. And then also, if you can go to different kinds of threads, ask questions, and see if people answer if you have any questions. Um, I think it's different for groups that have established that over the years because now they have such a in a an am, like an immense amount of that kind of credibility that they established over the years. Like you can go online and you can look up Blue Morpho, and you'll see things going back to 2003, 2004, 2005, and the reports are consistent with what was going on in 2008, 2009, 2010, and the reports are consistent with 2014, 15, 16, consistent now. You know, if so I think you want to, to just find out as much as you possibly can. And then there's also a great variety of types of practitioners. Like there's a great variety of music and it's all music, but not everybody likes the same music. You need to vibe with the energy of the group you're going to work with. You want to know that you're kind of of the same kind of vibe and and you relate to that uh, energy. And so I think that's also a, a good thing is to see if the kinds of people that go there are are the, you know, the kinds of people you would want to interact with and make sure that you you have the right, you know, kind of vibe with them. And then you can always ask them too. I always think that if people are interested in helping you and that's part of the work that they do, that's part of the service to make sure that you feel comfortable with making a decision about something that's so sacred and, and so important to you. So I think you add all of that up. And then the final thing I always say is look at the person in the eyes when you have an opportunity to, because the eyes are the window to their soul as well and see if those people will look back at you in the eye. Are they shifty? Are they clear? Are they centered within themselves? Are they confident in what they're doing? And I would honestly think to do exactly the same thing if I needed a surgical intervention. Like if I needed knee surgery, I would use the exact same logic to go find a knee surgeon. If I, uh, when I had a hip injury and I needed surgery, I did exactly the same thing. And so I think that, you know, it's not as nebulous as people try to make it out. And uh you're taking a big risk if you go with somebody that's unknown.
0: do you feel like at least the way that it's striking me, a lot of what you're saying is kind of trusting your gut, trusting that you're able to find these little i guess these little things right? like you're saying like look in their eyes, you know, see how they're interacting with you, trust your energy from my experience, which is obviously much more limited than yourself. It seemed to me and in my experience that I didn't really have the intuitional base going into it, right? So, well, not exactly ayahuasca, but like other plant medicine, it was more just like, this is what I want to do. This is the path forward and not taking that into account. So does it almost become a a chicken or egg question whenever it comes to being able to trust the practitioner versus not having fully developed that trust from whether it's past traumas or not truly knowing yourself and, and needing, which I don't want to use loosely here, but needing that extra element of whether it's plant medicine or more meditation to truly know that you can trust yourself and, and therefore trust the people that you're working with.
1: I think it's an inner combination of all of them. So if you go online and you find out that there's a lot of positive testimonials and reviews. I think you can probably go by those. You can, you know, look at the people and see if they're talking about things that resonate with you. I think that's probably enough to start with. Um and then if you're there uh it gives you the opportunity to check in and just make sure that it's a real resounding yes within you. And then you can get through that chicken or the egg issue. You know, I that's think true. the bigger concern is you're like traveling around and You know somebody comes up to you and and just offers you this almost like too good to be true scenario i think you look at that and you think like i needed more information
0: about that oh yeah that could be dangerous for sure Just the random person with like a card of ayahuasca just coming through like, oh, who wants (laughs) some?
1: Yeah. Or they're just like, hey, you know, did you hear about this shaman that just came into town who's from this great tribe over here? And it just happens that they're offering a once in a lifetime ceremony for you tonight. (laughs) uh, Maybe not, you know, but I agree that there's a there's a a bit of nebulous quality to trying to figure this out. And um, that's actually something that I'm trying to solve through our account academy. The Blue Morpho Academy's mission is to bring transparency to plant medicine practitioners and train them and certify them in a way that people would know that there's a a core foundation level of understanding that they have and a core level of mastery over that so that you would know, okay, well, at least these people have been to these schools and they've been, uh, they've graduated and been certified.
0: Right. Some sort of plaque of authentic authentication that's like, okay, like, they're good for sure you know like they've passed all the, the tests they've they've kind of seen enough things and and maybe that's an interesting thing right because it sounds like you've been at this for well over 20 years have you do you feel like you've seen everything that there is to see with this or are you still being surprised when you go into a ceremony um uh, it's
1: a surprising path and i think that that's a beautiful thing um it comes in evolutions where you go through like a great period of learning and then you go through a a great integration of that over years. And we're in a period of great innovation and expansion right now, which is actually really incredible. So the last six months has been really evolutionary and, and really an incredible expansion on all of our knowledge base. And it's led to even better outcomes for ourselves and for our guests. And that's really amazing. Like I didn't know that that was coming, it just had an opportunity to get to uh, retool everything. I got to kind of go back to the drawing board over COVID. We had this downtime. And when you're in the flow of something and you're constantly working with it, often you'll just maintain the patterns that worked before. And you don't have that chance to kind of step back and really let things center and and just look at it and say, well, how could we improve this? And so that gave us an opportunity to really ask that question in a core way and, and use all the knowledge we had, we had amassed over those 20 years to bring improvement to literally all of our processes. And uh, that's been really incredible to be able to live the nature of that improvement. But in terms of experiences that people have in the ceremonies, um, it's all now pretty consistent in terms of the what you would expect to have happen. I think what keeps it fresh and really interesting is that it always is happening in different orders. In different ways than you would have expected but you do come to a period of time where you understand the breadth of experience that people are going to have and how to be able to navigate that and it, i think it's ultimately better that there aren't surprises in that because you want to know that you have tools and capacities to be able to handle really any situation that could come up
0: mm. so even in that anything can happen almost modality there's maybe it sounds like there's almost that like there's themes of what people experience throughout their psilo- or their ayahuasca journeys
1: yeah and i think it also works with psilocybin and other plant medicines as well um, i think you probably gain that level of understanding av- after like an immense amount of experience so um, kind of put it into framework for people who don't know my background I've participated in over 1,500 ayahuasca ceremonies that I've held space for others. Does that mean you've done that that many times? Yes. That yeah, absolutely. And I've participated in another 1,500 plus other kinds of plant medicine ceremonies. So in total, I've I've uh, participated in over 3,000 plant medicine ceremonies, and um, I've worked with thousands of people, and it actually it adds up to tens of thousands of individual experiences. And so seeing that amount of experience, that many people go through it from all walks of life, from all over the world, people from over 100 countries, um, ultimately kind of creates this umbrella of, of understanding of what people go through, as long as you keep it within a safe parameter. So safe parameters within you know these parameters of dose and with the plant medicines prepared in a traditional way that are also based in a level of understanding and safety. and pre-screening people so that you know that they're appropriate candidates to be able to participate. And they don't have those other kinds of drug interactions going on that, you know, you screen out so you don't cause those problems that, you know, were discussed earlier in the podcast. And then you start to see, uh, yeah, it's a very wide variety of experiences, but consistent, like you said, kind of, you know, paths within it, like this is purging. This is what people do when they purge. Yeah, some people won't have a physical purge at all. And some people will purge 30 or 40 times, but no one purges a thousand times in the night. Like it just doesn't happen. Yeah. So you'll see somebody between zero and 40 and how you navigate that and help them through that part of the process. And then you'll see the same things in terms of visions. Like there's in visions seeing energies, there's visions communicating with, you know, what we described as spirit. There's people who interact with what they call uh, spirits, energies, entities, or aliens. There's uh, different kinds of colors. There's uh, consistency to the beings, which is I think one of the most phenomenal things we're seeing now out of this kind of cultural revolution of people participating is that many kinds of visionary beings are being seen in different circles all around the world at the same time and uh, receiving very consistent and similar kinds of intervention or support or help from them. So those kinds of experiences all kind of ultimately fit within the umbrella where you have a point of reference for what somebody experienced, including direct experience of source or divinity, God, et cetera.
0: Well, let's stick on those beings for a bit, because this is something I love talking about. And aliens, I'm sure, will touch in here at some point, because it's it's a wild conversation for me, right? But but let's start off with those the entities, right? You were saying that there's this commonality that people are seeing between certain entities. I mean, you know, first of all, like what what is the magnitude of this, right? If you've worked with maybe 10,000 people, like what percentage of them are seeing this and then like kind of like what are they seeing or reporting that they are seeing whenever they're contacting certain beings?
1: Yeah, and in our ceremonies themselves, you have to First, go to the core understanding of the mythology of the practices, which is that inside the visionary space, there are commonalities, there are beings, and they can have a direct impact on you. So, that's fundamental to these practices. It's been understood and talked about generation after generation for what we would think of now as thousands of years. And um, I think a lot of people deny that sounds too fanciful. It's Harry Potter, it's sci fi. Only these people live sci-fi. This is normal for them. And so you have to, you know, understand that and at least suspend disbelief enough to think like, well, ask the question, how is it possible that, you know, thousands of Westerners now are participating in these ceremonies? Not everyone has an understanding of these beings. They've never heard of them. And they ultimately see them on. Um, un- Last week I was on retreat. I had close to 30 people with me in ceremony. And the next day I just raised your hand, how many people interacted or saw these kinds of beings? Over 25 raised their hands. So uh, you're well over 80, 90% of participants are interacting with and seeing them. They're a traditional form of understanding here amongst the lineages. And now being seen all over the world, we could unpack it and take full responsibility for it and say it's something within our field of consciousness maybe a primordial or ancestral form of understanding and consciousness that we have that's sort of latent within us and when we go into this visionary space we tap into it and and there they appear you could make an argument that it's some other form of consciousness that you're interacting with i've heard both and I don't debate it. I'm more interested in the fact that the phenomena is shared and purposeful. And I think a great example of it to give it context is there's now an understanding that there are these kinds of beings that look like praying mantises. So they look like the insect of praying mantis. They're very interested in people in these visionary states. And they actually come as a form of doctor or a form of healer to you. And they can perform some kind of act upon you that can transform you in a positive way and bestow healing. And they're being seen in ayahuasca circles, psilocybin circles, uh, et cetera. And, um, and it's becoming really common. I don't have an answer for why it's becoming common, but I find it very fascinating that these kinds of phenomena are appearing and that there's a ability to codify this. It's not just... So random that people are, are are making it up. It's very very clear when you talk, you know, the same way you would codify anything: size, shape, weight, color, etc. They all tick the same boxes and describe these phenomena in the same way.
0: Do you have like some sort of group then that where you're like of of shamans, like a group of shamans or maestros who all have discussions about these like common beings or entities that are constantly being seen like time and time again, or even just common events that seem to be almost taking place at a mass scale within, whether it's our subconscious mind or within the ether, like are those discussions being had between you and other practitioners or shamans, I guess. It's a little more amorphic than
1: that. I mean, you got to think that the shamanic war, like industry or world it's loosely organized and it's you know unregulated so you have practitioners all over the world you have a ancestral mythology that's understood and i would say that that ancestral mythology is a living mythology so if you wanted to say like where's the codification for all of those different kinds of beings i'm saying it's it's literally right there like now the the kids know it like everybody knows it it's it's in the mythology itself. It's in the stories. It's in like the bedtime stories. It's in the way that parents teach kids about the forest and these supernatural forces that are found within the store, forest. And the, um, the medicine people of the forest are revered and they actually, there's a lot of them. So this, you know, the idea in the Western culture where you don't really see people like this makes it seem very mysterious. But if you go deep into the forest along the rivers, every town has one person like this who's practicing plant medicine within the town. And so it's just, it's in the storytelling itself. And so uh, like, as an example, there's a being that they describe as like the lantern being because it glows and people see it who are sober with their eyes open in the forest. And you're walking through the forest and you see this thing that's, you know, humanoid and Looks kind of glowy, and then it emanates light like this. So you could come here to the city to people who've really spent almost no time in the forest, and you can describe to them the idea that you've seen something like that, and they'll be like, "Oh, the lantern being." You're like, "How do you guys know about this?" Like, oh, well, they teach us that when we're kids. It's in our yeah. it's in our stories. It's in like the the books we see. So that kind of stuff exists. And then inside ayahuasca, at least, which I think is also fascinating is that in your visions, you come across other shamans. In your visions, you come across other people that you know are alive and practitioners. Oh. And, um, and they know each other that way. And they have a certain kind of direct communication about the state of affairs of the whole, uh, the whole space and the evolution of consciousness within ayahuasca. And so there's those kinds of interactions as well and within that there could be other kinds of you know beings and they would be okay with that they would be like pointing to something sort of like hey there it is and then um you know then within lineages themselves they get together and they talk about their experiences and their discoveries and who they're interacting with and why and how and that can cross uh individual lineages to other ones where there's open communication so that's why i say it's kind of loosely organized it's an intercombination of all of that but I would love to see and I'm a great proponent for the idea of conferences where they all get together or we all get together and we break it down and we make it understandable for people because I think it's a it's a mysterious phenomena that is uh like the beginnings of to me the last frontier which is the exploration of consciousness.
0: I'm all on board with you there and and even my mind right I'm I'm thinking of this in terms of historical things that have occurred. Right. And I've always had this kind of feeling that there's like this underlying, what would you say? Like human level consciousness, right? Like we have our individual, you know, things we've experienced things we felt, but then even at like the human psyche, there's almost only so many things that we can experience because of almost like, I wouldn't want to say the lowest common denominator, but like the average thing that people believe. And I know you can see this throughout history with you know tools that have been developed over like thousands of years periods where you know the time that the hammer appeared in like south america was like plus or minus 10 years in africa and it was also then appeared in like north america in like the same rough time frame and they've tracked this with like well over 300 different tools or instruments of you know development i always found that so fascinating because it hints at what you're saying here where there is this a layer, whether you want to call it subconscious, whether you want to call it the ether, you know, this is where it gets weird, because we don't exactly have the words to describe these things. Um, is that like, my intuition says, like, yes, like this exists, you know, you talking to other shamans, whether it's aliens, or even just energetic beings, like there's my intuition, that's like, Hamilton's on to something here. Like, I know what he's saying is accurate. But have you thought about but this is me coming from an intuitional perspective if you think about it from maybe more of the critical thinking the materialistic brain is there like a study that you've considered or uh some sort of scientific approach let's say modern scientific approach that we could take to this to say okay there are actually um insect beings that look like uh you know praying mantises that are here to heal our subconscious you know, have you thought about how we can actually like mesh those two worlds to create a, actually map out what's happening in this ayahuasca dimension?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think it's starting with the work and, and like really deep thought that our ancestors have already put into this and starting there to try to understand. So there are phenomena around this that's hard for us to wrap our heads around. There's a, a temple outside of Cusco called uh, Templo de la Luna, like the moon temple. And if you go up to it, there are huge carvings, like 20 20 to 30 foot tall carvings of elephant heads. And these were done, you know, some 1000s of years ago. And you have to ask yourself, well, there are no elephants in South America. So where are they getting these shapes? it's either in their stories or they're in some kind of collective mind share Mm. where they're getting these shapes they're getting these understandings and so i think that's like a great example your example of the appearance of tool use around the planet at different times is incredible and it's in mathematics as well you can go study the history of math and you see not, not only in tool use, but in massive form of language, it's in linguistic understanding of applying that language to nature, um, that there's also this great emergence of consistency in timeline and universal uh, like understanding or awakening to those concepts. Like the use of the zero in math is a, great, a great, uh, I underst- great example of that. Many people don't know that the use of the zero is a really recent phenomenon. In sort of collective human history. Before that, there was just math without a zero. Now there's math with a zero. And it was shared over just a few hundred years in areas where people didn't have uh, communication with each other. So isolated populations all coming to the same fundamental philosophical need for that symbol and that tool within their understandings. I think that's a good place to start. So that to me says, okay, there's something to study here there's enough going on that we don't understand, but there's enough touch points. There's enough evidence that we need to study something here. And then we can go to our psychologists and psychiatrists, like, uh, you know, Jung who's talking about the collective unconscious and this idea that other people have brought forward of like a field of consciousness. So you're kind of alluding to that with this idea of in the ether, right? This, this greater field that we're part of. And, um, I like to think of that as well in the form of of nature as that biological systems are all interconnected, like as much as it might seem like you could be in a a room that's not a biological system. you could isolate yourself within that room there's a a microscopic biological system that's fully alive you know inside your house or inside your apartment, so you're still sure. interconnected in this great system um, so I think that that's enough to start with, and then we would have to devise studies that would limit the variables, because I think the pollution in most studies around this is just too many variables to be able to ultimately have a, a control group in a way to be able to understand um, you know, the isolation of those variables. So you try to isolate the variables in a kind of study that could start to bring sense to this. There's a group trying to do prolonged DMT experimentation to try to map the states of consciousness that are found within DMT um i think there will be a tremendous amount of science that will bring a lot of evidence to what we're talking about uh i think it's important to mention kind of at this juncture that this incredible explosion in testing technology and what we've used in science over the last 40 or 50 years to or maybe even 60 70 80 years to understand the world the way we do now uh was basically prohibited to use those same technologies to study psychedelics and to study plant medicines because of scheduled prohibitions. So there's a retardation sadly in the amount of understanding that we have from a scientific perspective on these things that are described kind of more mystically or more anecdotally. So there's enough anecdotal evidence to say something's happening here. Um, I'm comfortable to use kind of more umbrella terms like that's a that's an energy or people call that an entity i don't have to call it that if a thousand other people do hmm. i have to take that symbol and try to understand it um the all the indigenous local people call that a spirit i go okay westerners call that an entity or a being these people call it a spirit they're talking about the same phenomena i'm interested in the phenomena not in the language that's being used to apply to that phenomena and so now we're going to have to you know find a way to map and study the nature of those phenomena we will have those capacities. AI is a tool we'll be able to use for that. Um, the advancements in chemistry and biochem will support tremendously. And just the advance, advancements in what we know of as in compute will allow us to also uh, support these findings. I think you'll see in the next, maybe even less than five years, maybe up to 10 years, an explosion of uh, understanding and scientific evidence coming out that starts to prove all of this when uh, we're allowed to apply science and then ultimately capitalism to these plants and there's a profit motive and a need for discovery and there will be just a mass acceleration and study on all of them including all of these phenomena we're talking about
0: this is pretty wild this is this is really wild because i originally was wanted to bring this conversation up earlier and i was like oh we should probably dive into your background a bit more to re-bring this up, but you're starting to touch on it here now with the integration of AI into the plants. And one of my favorite theories of all time introduced by Terrence McKenna, you probably are familiar with it, but like the stoned ape uh, hypothesis or theory. This episode of traveling to consciousness is brought to you by conscious technologies, LLC. Talk about an aligned company name, this company creating technology. That will revolutionize the way that humanity is able to resonate or vibrate with the electromagnetic frequency of your phone, of your Wi-Fi router, of the light bulbs in your house, of really anything. What they do is they have created these amazing minerals, amazing units that you can either place on the back of your phone, you can wear it as a necklace, or they even have like little in-house generators, if you will, that can unify the entire field of an entire house. I've experienced these things in person, and I unequivocally can tell you that it does something and it helps you feel more present, more calm, and more connected to the spiritual dimension, if you will. And I highly recommend that you also check out episode number 034, where I actually talked to one of the co-founders and it blew my mind away. One of my favorite episodes where we actually get into how he creates it, why it's created. And, you know, if this wasn't enough of a sell for you, go check out that episode, because I know that it will sell you after that. Conscious Technologies, LLC, harmonizing the planet one person at a time.
1: Yeah, I mean, I don't debate it at all. I I wouldn't even call it that. I would call it the evolutionary, just ape-consuming everything model
0: okay <laughs> like
1: they just ate everything like humans <laughs> ate everything <laughs> <laughs> it's everything how do you get all the receptors <laughs> like this is a co-evolution over time but yeah the Terrence McKenna stone ape theory in terms of the evolution of consciousness the evolution of uh of uh the seeding of of advanced linguistics tool making everything that was needed to go from uh proto-people to modern, to the the very first versions of what would become modern Homo sapiens sapien, I think has to somewhere be intertwined with visionary plants, psychedelics, et cetera. Uh, even just by process of elimination and accident, it would have happened.
0: Absolutely. And I want to take this one more step further, but just in case someone's listening and they haven't heard of it, the core concept of the theory is that apes, as they were evolving out of Africa, started tracking animals. And one of the ways you track animals is through their feces and psilocybin mushrooms grow off of feces. So as humans or primates at the time were tracking animals, they were collecting mushrooms and eating mushrooms and basically tripping balls and, you know, creating all this new circuitry in the brain and all this mysticism was kind of becoming evolved, if you will. And where i'm taking that now that's kind of the stone day theory or her hypothesis but where i'm taking that now is kind of where we're hitting with um ai and this development of ai and something that's now even more getting pushed into my forefront is you know how you can generate these ai images off of words or off of language and where i find it fascinating is it seems though that there's you know, if humans are almost like this intersection between whether it's the technological age and (laughs) nature, right? Like we're almost that centerpiece that's going to connect um, mushrooms to technology. We're going to find a way to integrate nature into technology. And we honestly might be that in the future with all the things from like Neuralink that, you know, Elon Musk is doing to, I I don't know, even just trying to get off planet, right? If we start sprouting fungus on Mars, for instance, like that's a big way to create an environment there. You're we're essentially moving nature to other planets and all of this to kind of say, or just put out there, like how, I guess to formulate this into even a question for yourself, have you had any sort of maybe visions or experiences as to, or thoughts on even how we could use AI to even model these, this, this dream world, or even this dream world's a, a weird way to put it, but even just this like DMT landscape of, of things that we can't even conceptualize into words, but we're doing our best to conceptualize into words to almost help us find this deeper understanding of what's occurring in, in the ether for lack of a better word.
1: Yeah. I, I, uh, I agree with, with kind of the, general direction of the thesis, um, I would love to be able to poll all the, the AI scientists and ask them straight up and have them give us an honest truth, how many psychedelics they've taken. Because I've heard reports of, of certain groups that have been utilizing psychedelics as means of being able to create the discoveries that they're they're mm-hmm. utilizing to be able to even understand AI at a point and the union of linguistics and so I think that's just a fascinating idea that, um, you know, psychedelics might already be a huge player in the AI debate.
0: Well, Steve Jobs and, even took LSD pretty, pretty notably. And he created the still to this date, the best one of the best pieces of technology we have.
1: Yeah, and I think that that's actually normal in the Silicon Valley tech scene to explore consciousness as a, a part of problem solving. I know some of the uh, early scientists and psychedelics in Silicon Valley space. And before there were all the prohibitions and they were telling me that in their early studies at Stanford University, they were getting over a 90% success rate when they were giving large doses of psychedelics to tech executives that had fundamental problems in, that they needed to solve or innovate for. Wow. And through single sessions, they would go into the session and they would come out of that session with an answer, a fundamental solution to their problem over 90 percent success rate
0: which um, is insane from a statistical perspective
1: completely insane and that's exactly what the core shamanic thesis was is that people would go into an altered state they would find something uh fundamentally of great value or use they would come out of that state with the ability to remember it and be able to bestow that on their tribe so now you have a situation identical you have somebody in a, a tribal situation, like a corporate situation. They have an absolute need. They know it. They have a stress and pressure about that. They go into a, a large altered state experience, and they're coming back more than nine out of 10 times with that answer. And they're able to give it not only to the tribe the you know, in, in the sense of their corporation, but they're also giving that to the entire society because now the corporation's using it to be able to grow. And that's part of our entire Economic frab- fabric as a society so uh to think you know that that psychedelics and plant medicines and technology are all intertwined I think is completely fair uh, you take that into the debate on AI and yes AI has a potential to be able to help us in tremendous ways especially around modeling and creating different forms of modeling uh, around and uh, creation around different kinds of testing and then Ultimately, there's a possibility for even the a i itself to have its own kind of visionary experiences that it could talk about, and there's another intersection which I think is really phenomenal, which could be that you know along these these lines we're talking about stone date theory basically taking people to having advancements in language tools and technologies and culture, and then that going you know full circle uh hundreds of thousands of years later to humans utilizing very similar compounds and substances to be able to help birth uh, these new kinds of intelligences, which is same thing, tools, language, and creating culture and shifting our own culture. And then utilizing those tools to ultimately wrap back around to the biology, which is where there's a synthesis now of what seems like two very diverted uh, worlds, which is the silicon world and the biological world. But Mm. I have heard of Thought experiments and early experiments on where the silicon world ultimately is united once again with the biological world and kicks off a whole nother evolution there. Data storing inside mycelium networks, Uh, mycelium networks becoming next versions of AI, basic huge neural networks in the biological form themselves, learning how to create data storage with inside these kinds of carbon-based systems, et cetera. Um, I don't have the the answer for that, but the theory is already there, and I think that that's exactly uh, you know an extension of this original idea that these altered states of consciousness are ultimately providing a deeper understanding, a an awakening that's taking place, um, new creativity, thoughts, ideas, and invention that ultimately are applied to our linguistics and our tools, and um, fundamentally AI is a kind of math it's a It's a language, and it's being applied with hardware. Those are tools, and they're uh mirroring uh assumptions in nature without even fully understanding how human neurons work. They're saying, well, maybe these computerized neurons are working or these silicon neurons are working like humans, let's test it and see they're using deductive reasoning and process of elimination, and that's what's ultimately uh giving birth to. These new technologies, so I think it's fair to say that a melting pot of all of this and a coming full circle over you know hundreds of thousands of years is within Earth's capacity and something that we should really take seriously,
0: for sure. And and I'm not sure if you've seen it, but they have this thing. It's called like uh, mushroom music, where they'll like hook up a synthesizer to like basically Ooh. just a mushroom. Yeah, it's it's so cool, and and it'll like play these like harmonic notes and this kind of like synthesized energy. And where i'm going with this is if we're able to even and this is where i think it could get really crazy is if we could find a way to actually map like what those harmonics are saying and i think ai would have to be a part of this map those harmonics to a language model that actually then spits out in english where then we could actually and this this i feel like i'm going next level hippie with this but actually talk to plants or animals even by using the vibrations that are either coming out of their vocal cords or coming off of the plant life and could really be that next step in evolution where it's like, okay, we're so worried about the planet, but like, let's actually literally talk to the planet and see what it says it needs. I'm not sure how
1: next level hippie that is. I, I think the, the divergence is in a concept of can you have an accurate linguistics that can be proven? so pre rosetta stone there was no way to to tie all these ancient languages to modern languages right post rosetta stone there was a way right now ai is being used uh to recreate languages that are in degraded scrolls and machine learning is being used to be able to ultimately do the pattern recognition necessary that we're not capable of without that tool, we're capable of creating that tool, but that tool is able to then recreate that language. And it's a big if, right? So this is a big if, but if you could find a common language, a common form of codification of some kind of stimulus could be electromagnetic. It could be through the brainwaves itself. It could be, you know, that you've neurolinked other kinds of animals and you figured out how to neurolink. Uh, plants, trees, and fungus, and you bring those together. That AI is capable of pattern recognition to a level of sophistication to be able to say, um, not only is there a language here, but it might make something like spoken English seem very rudimentary. Mm. And I think that that's a something that I would uh, I would always hedge with is. we're very arrogant in thinking that the way we understand things now is one, the way it is. And two, the best way. Right. Right. And we might find out that it's one, not the most sophisticated form of language already in existence. And we may find out that we're not the apex intelligence that we thought we were. We were just looking at it through a lens and a form of comparison that was, you know, applying, the language of math and physics and uh machines and our creations and our inventions. You know, you could hypothesize that the entire biosphere is intelligent in its own right and may someday uh have that common language to be able to share with humans something fundamental that they don't know.
0: Well and even on top of this, right, we were talking earlier about how whenever discussing these uh, these consciousness or let's say the DMT world if you will when discussing that ether that world right like even here we don't have a specific word for describing the dmt world or spirit or god or the universal energy right we have like four or five different words that are like okay this is what we're talking about but wouldn't it even be amazing if we could kind of get ai to that point where it's like here's the perfect word to use. You guys haven't had this word before and, and it uses the basics of English and pronunciation that will make sense for your subconscious brain.
1: I think that that's, you know, real and much closer than people might think. Yeah. There's a real interesting uh, phenomenon that where AI first was applicable like to, to the large consumer model is around language itself. And language is the fundamental nexus for everything that humans do. So if you take away language right now from people, the entire global system stops. People would not know what to do. It's how they organize. Language of time, language of math, and language of the spoken word. And then the expression of that, of something that's ineffable within us, the beliefs that we have that we then turn into words. Hmm. And so people also don't, I think, typically realize that sitting behind every computer mechanism is a language. And it's it, there's a, a fundamental language in the electricity and the light that's being used. And there's a fundamental language that can translate that to other form of code. And what com- computation ultimately is, is a universal Language. Digital is a universal language for all the other languages. So it's a a way to universally represent all the other forms of language. And it's created this great explosion of language amongst people. Um, So if you think about that right now, what's really moving the whole world is a language. It's only one language, it's the language of human. You take that away and human just stops. Right now, AI is training on that so ai is real-time training on human language and so it's a fundamental nexus it's where consciousness for us becomes codified and symbolic and something that can be shared I mean, imagine if every single person spoke a different language. No one would be able to communicate anything, but they would be doing what we're doing right now.
0: We have to develop some telepathy.
1: (laughs) You'd have to. And that would be its own language, right? right? That would be something that AI might be able to also discern for us, which is what actually is telepathy when people say they experience it? Why are people saying they experience it? The ones that aren't lying are describing a phenomena that they don't even know how to describe, and they're using the term telepathy to try to describe it. In my career, I've tried to be open-minded to look for the phenomena that people are being honest about and then try to study and understand that phenomena. And I always leave open, it could be that that person is truly the miraculous one that they are having an experience that literally no one else is having and they're being completely honest about it. Or it's actually something that multiple people can experience and we have to understand why. And we we don't know. We we're, you know... Looking into that, I think AI will be a tool which will bring a lot of of credibility and understanding to sort of what we would think right now is very difficult to describe or even uh, incredulous.
0: Yeah, and even as a point of case study, let's say, for talking about the power of language or at least the, let's say, connection between the power that language has specifically related to machine learning I would highlight that we've had like machine learning robot vision, if you will, for a very long time with, you know, how whenever you like click on a picture and it will like re auto and like find the face feature, like that's a, that's a form of AI being able to see what a face is. And we've had that for at least, let's say at least bare minimum, 10 plus years. Right. But where it gets interesting is like with chat GPT, which is a language model where, um, versus where the find your face is more of like a vision model. So the language model of chat it took like something crazy, like a week for it to hit a million users or something like that, like an insanely short period of time. So just even just as like a small case study, I wanted to bring that up as to like what we're hitting, what you're hitting on here is, is so true that that language seems to be that new frontier of, of just or not the new frontier, but at least the, the pathway into that new frontier, it's going to be how we communicate with nature, how we communicate with AI. And then it seems like the next level to this, right. As we develop more, maybe as humans and I'm, I'm kind of losing the connection here. So maybe you'll be able to help me out here, but, but it feels like even the next level to that is developing our telepathic abilities. Cause I have seen a lot of studies, a lot by Dr. Dean Radin. Um, and a few others that have actually really honed in on the ability for telepathy between two people. So do you see that as people wake up, let's say and and I'm also um, this is a little bit of a tangent here, but I'm also trying to now connect back in how we were talking about earlier how the the baseline consciousness, as it raises throughout humanity as a whole, we unlock almost like these new abilities, whether they're tools that we're able to use or, potentially in the case of telepathy. So do you see at some level not to, and not to pat your ego, but like the work you're doing, waking people up that it could lead to telepathy in the future as being like just more common ground even. Yeah. I think the,
1: like I said earlier, I think consciousness is the final frontier, at least as the way that we know it in terms of uh, being a pioneer and explorer and, and you know early researcher in something and we went through this mass acceleration in the use of intelligence and really the use of consciousness without understanding consciousness i became very interested in consciousness uh 15 16 years ago because i was experiencing on a regular basis repeatable and codifiable shifts in consciousness and so that typically in, in mystical texts was unheard of. And in the plant medicine space, it was common. So these shifts in consciousness were either psychomagical or they were religious in nature or they were mystical in nature. In the, the things I had to be able to try to understand what was happening, like the tools that I had been given by our ancestors in our text, Eastern philosophical concepts in Buddhism, uh, Hinduism, et cetera, or even, you know, Qigong and energy practices, but it wasn't like there was a way to scientifically understand, oh, this is what shifts in consciousness are. And even just along that line, the idea of shifts in consciousness, the idea of life improvement through that, the idea of being healed through shift in consciousness is now becoming something that people are getting much more interested in. So 15 years ago, no one even knew how to describe it. No one had heard about it. No one was interested in it. Now it's, becoming much more common to hear. You hear the concept of these shifts in consciousness. You typically find out that yes, other kinds of plant medicines or psychedelics were involved as a trigger to it, but that that's not the only way. And then there's been a mass expansion in uh, people looking for ways to generate this without utilizing any kind of extra substance, like utilizing biohacking, utilizing breath work, utilizing um, exercise, cold plunges, all these different ways to be able to also create this, this phenomena of shift in consciousness. So you take that entire body of, of knowledge and understanding that people are awakening to. And I think everybody involved did their part in helping pioneer that and open that up for, and popularize that for the rest of the the people of the world. I think that's what like the early adopters do. So there are always these pioneers that's kind of the discoverers that said, Hey, this is really interesting over here. They sound their siren, they bang their drum. They say like, you got to look at this guys, this is wild. A few other early adopters get involved and then they start to share it. They hype it and get, you know, cut through the noise so that people can understand it. And then there's a chain reaction of where other people get involved in more and more. And I think that, you know, axiomatically like by nature, we are part of that. And it's something that I'm very glad for. That we could be pioneers in this space Um, to get to the point of telepathy as you go further and further what we are as consciousness will ultimately become more and more shared and as it becomes more and more shared our capacities could evolve and change to make these things that would be seen as uh very random very rare or seemingly impossible actually something that's very commonplace and so I like to look to nature for examples of that that are just undeniable. And like one of those examples for me are land mammals that actually went back to sea. So if the origin story that first animals were in the sea and ultimately came to land, now land animals ultimately evolved to be back in the sea, and those are our orcas and dolphins and whales and things, that's mind-blowing for me. That's just absolutely mind-blowing. I would say right now if somebody told me that, no, that's impossible, doesn't exist, not true, could not be, yet we have extensive evidence for something like that. So I like to think if that's that big of an unknown, like that something like that could happen, um, I like to think the same about us in that um, it's really sky's the limit what we could do in terms of our own evolution. And the more we evolve our consciousness, the more possible that becomes. So it is possible that we could become more telepathic we may find out with AI that lots of animals are telepathic already, that we just don't even know it. We may find out that there's already a telepathy going on. Um, I'm always interested in herd animals, how herd animals seem to be able to send a signal. I'm interested in schools of fish where they're able to move all at once. Right. I'm interested in uh, these other kinds of collective phenomena. Why do, how do birds uh, communicating with each other, what are they using to be able to fly and migrate the way that they are? Um, Etc. There's all of these different connections with nature that are fascinating in their own right. And then it just makes me think, wow, humans could have so much more capacity than what we currently have. I, I saw a, a video recently of a person who's blind who echolocates. I've seen that. And I think, well, that's incredible. So that person has sonar. Yeah. Um, yeah other animals have sonar. That person has sonar. So people can have sonar. Um some people have measurable scientific telepathy. Telepathy is possible, so maybe someday we all have sonar. We all have telepathy, and um, you know we realize that we were very early evolutionary examples of what humans
0: going to become. I mean, that is an interesting point too, right? Of because I'm trying to think about this in terms of like the sonar. Right, he's blind, so he's losing one of his sense perceptions, and we know whenever you do that, it increases all the other ones. It's probably just a survival mechanism, but it's a very powerful one at that. And even more so, and he developed this way in order for him to survive in the world with his given limitations, right? And, and it seems to me that the world that we are currently living in is so abundant with resources and everything that it, there almost is that lack of limitation in a sense, or at least we're approaching it in some way. And I'm not sure why I'm going here with this, but maybe it's it's related. <laughs> um, but I know like a, a big fear that's related with AI is the number of jobs that it will ultimately kind of take out. And I kind of see it highly parallel to the whole COVID conversation, where. A lot of people got put out of work. And I think it forced a lot of people to kind of go inward to examine themselves, right? You get placed with this limitation of the outside world. And it's like, you know, what do we do? It's like you gotta find a way to survive now, given this new external limitation that's placed upon you. And I believe like one of the good things that came out of that whole situation was that more people were awakening. And maybe I'm projecting that on my situation, but I, I think that, you know, it's it's touching on. Kind of what you've probably experienced over the last 20 years. So maybe even that's a good question to ask you, which is, you know, when COVID kind of started coming around, did you see you maybe had like a little bit of a, a stalemate with like travel and whatnot? But but have you kind of seen like a similar trajectory of like people who have gotten put out of work? You know, they have this proclivity to say there needs to be something more to life than just work in order for me to survive and find purpose
1: think it has to happen. Um, COVID, I think, is a really dynamic topic. And so where I see that there's this possibility of awakening was people having time to get online and become inquisitive and ask questions and see different kind of content out there that m- they might not have been paying attention to before that. And I think the measurement I have for that is I paid attention to what was, you know, videos and public information about our fields and saw the number of views that they had on very old videos. So, you know, things that were, uh, five, six, seven, eight years ago, three, four years before COVID ever happened that had 10,000 views, hundred thousand views, all of a sudden had hundreds of thousands of views to millions of views. Wow. And so I saw, okay, wow, there's a huge expansion of people being introduced to this information that never would have been able to be introduced before. Uh, they didn't have the time they didn't have the energy they didn't have the inquisitiveness they weren't shut in they weren't causing. it wasn't causing the existential questions that would drive somebody to go try to seek that kind of information and i saw that um, covid was a big player in this real revival of interests in altered states and the mind and spiritual experiences and asking that question is this all there is I think if your day is filled with tasks that fill up every day to exhaustion until you go to sleep and you wake up again, identified in that pattern, and you do that again and again and again, uh, you just don't have time, energy, or even interest. And then you see in in the Western developed societies that people become very spiritual around the age of retirement. <laughs> so why is there a resurgence? And they've they've moved beyond... Uh, one echelon of life which is career and family and they're becoming you know the age of grandparents and they're now also lo and behold becoming spiritual and understand. you see the great scientists the great physicists are becoming mystics at the end of their life they're they're no longer in the field of science they might be revered in the field of science but they're just not there anymore and They're now becoming mystics, and the greatest physicist, including Einstein, was a mystic at the end of his life. And they were asking the questions around the unknown as they were also looking into what they call death. So I think that that's uh, very, very real. And I would like to propose the idea now that we might need to start thinking about who we are and what we are individually and as a collective if we just don't have to work yeah like like as as an evolutionary phenomena it doesn't really work well in competitive economic western capitalist ideals it doesn't work well in a global war scenario between superpowers so like those kind of umbrella concepts that we've also been born with may have to pivot or evolve to be able to to realistically think about this but but if you look at it in terms of like proto people, cause I always keep proto people in my mind. What are proto people? They didn't work. Yeah. Like the earliest humans, Okay, like maybe not even homo sapien sapien, maybe like the lost link or you have homo sapien sapien. And then all of a sudden there's the human tribe, but you don't have any description of that leap to, to like, just there being sapien sapien, walking around eating Doing whatever, you know, making babies, dying—like that's all they're doing. And then all of a sudden, there's a tribe, right? Mm-hmm. There's there's this first social organization, the first belief systems, the first consistent tool use, the first identification to symbols. More than there's just this flow. So I say those guys, and it's debated when they appeared in evolutionary history. So maybe a million years ago, maybe two million years ago, give or take. But Those people to now, at some point, had to start working, right? And then at another point in time, they had to start being identified with their work, labeled Mm -hmm. by their work, like farmer or blacksmith or baker, you know, now coder or doctor or surgeon. And then there's like more specialization and more specialization and more specialization maybe ultimately comes to a point in time very soon in the future where 2% of the human population has to work. And maybe they are extremely revered for their work. Maybe they're the next generation, quote unquote, billionaires. And everyone else literally has no purpose in work whatsoever. It would be a waste of their time to be in some kind of work productivity because they'll literally do it worse than robots and they'll do it with more errors and less capacity, et cetera. And we would have to look at ourselves and say, well, as these civilized societies or these just mass organized societies, maybe they're not very civilized even, maybe that's self-aggrandizement, but, but as these big civil, you know, big civilized societies, we came to a point where we became so capable through the nature of our work and invention, we transcended the need to work and be identified within that work. And we would see that that was no different in evolution than when we went from stone tools to metal tools. It'd be no difference when we went from the earliest bronze tools to to steel. It would be no different than when we went from stone buildings to glass and steel buildings. It'd be no different than when we went from pre-computers to post-computers. And it'd be like, wow, we finally grew to a point that we could put down the toil. And that we could really reclaim our lives again. Hmm. We could reclaim what it is to just be alive and uh, what we could ultimately create with that. We won't know until we get there. But I would prepare us for that discussion because most of the thought leaders are saying it's right on the horizon and that there could be a massive social reorganization around that. And many of us would be looking at what we call early retirement.
0: Right. And I think it's a... It's definitely a very important conversation to have because I know trying to remember who the, uh, ex presidential candidate was, but this is where they started trying to talk about introducing a, uh, universal basic income. And I think personally, something just never quite sat right with me, whether it's because it feels too much like socialism or whatever it, it. (laughs) I don't want to get this too into a politic conversation. So why did I bring it up? I guess it's the idea that we still would be holding on to the idea that there's some form of money that needs to be distributed into the system in order for all of our needs to be met or for us to be able to kind of cultivate this thing off of it. Right. And I think that where it gets also interesting is how you're bringing about, you know, there's going to be these outliers of people who just like it's in their DNA to work. You know, I think about like Elon Musk or even um, the YouTuber, Mr. Beast. Like there's some people who are just wired where they like just, they need to be doing 24 seven. And where it kind of gets interesting to me, and this is kind of how I've been looking at this in like the last year where like, I don't make a lot of money specifically from my podcast, but I've found it very interesting. Like the more that I'm just in my flow, Money comes from like weird places. Like like recently just the other day in the mail I got this thing that was like, you know, my ex my last company I worked at, there was like some lawsuit that happened and it was like, oh, you were just automatically a part of this lawsuit, so we're going to send you a check for, you know, like a couple hundred dollars or, you know, somebody needs help down the road. So it's like you go and help them and and it and I know I'm getting into this very esoteric conversation now that I'm not sure holds a lot of weight in the physical world, but maybe you're able to help me connect these dots, which is almost like just by living your purpose or even just helping others, the universe almost finds a way to conspire in the background to sustain your quality of life. And so at least this is my anecdotal perception that I've seen. So I'm really curious if you kind of have any theories or if you know of anything that's not so anecdotal that supports this Just and I I want to be careful here because I don't want to approach this as like we just shouldn't worry about that because the universe will take care of it versus having so much faith that the universe will take care of it, that it actually does take care of it.
1: I think going to the universal basic income question, fundamentally, it gets compared to the idea of like a minimum wage or like a minimum stipend. And we're still comparing back to a society that's using money in the way that we're using money today to describe an advancement in culture and civilization to the point that we may have to also redefine even what money is. Mm. And we might have to go back in our understanding of money to even understand how we got here in the first place. And there was a fundamental need when money was first created to... To abstract a value for real things. And it wasn't a way to measure yourself in society, it was a way to measure things. And over time, money has been abstracted into this great global system. And it's ultimately just a unit of accounting. So it's not the way that it's actually described to people anymore. But fundamentally, behind all money is a giant global ledger that's being held, like a huge Excel file, right? It's just a huge file and run by central banks and it's run by governments and it's run by individual uh companies and it goes all the way down to your little piece of that ledger which is like your taxes in the year and it's your books and it's your money right you it's a big fractal it really is a big fractal just scales down and it scales up and it's really an ingenious form of accounting and counting for things that otherwise would be very abstract for us like You couldn't have global commodity markets and you couldn't have even the ability to farm corn over here and send it over there and wheat over here where it's better to do that and send it over here and soybeans over here where it's better to send it over there. But the one thing that the modern capitalist system does the worst of, literally the worst of, it's the use of human resources. Hmm. Because the external pressures on us don't allow us to be able from birth to learn our fundamental talents and be used for those things our fundamental talents have to be conformed and by that i mean like your unique genius your unique thing that literally no one in the world can do better than you yes because you exist as a unique phenomenon and that phenomena is scientifically provable no one is your matter No one has your exact ancestry. No one breathes the same air you breathe. No one has the experiences you have. No one is your intelligence. And we don't even get to tap into this. And we don't even have a way to cultivate this within our youth, generation after generation, because we're forced to conform to a social need. And I don't mean that in any kind of negative. On the contrary, like if we don't have food production, We don't have a way to grow society, and it doesn't mean that everyone doing food
0: production is the best at food production or would even want to be doing food production. It's like classical, my dad was a baker, so I want to be a baker.
1: Exactly. And it's then social pressures and then a competition matrix on top of it, which might have been the best we had at that time, but it doesn't mean that's the best we're going to have when we start to compound new technologies and new abilities to be able to understand us. And so I look at this as a tremendous social opportunity that under the right philosophical lens, we could, we could make an argument that society could change in a way where all of a sudden what your core talents are, are seen as being really important. And the the nurturing of those talents in a collective form of education, an individualized form of education, and there would be no way to do that other than with something like AI. And AI could be a tool capable to capable enough to be able to create a unique education for you that's also with enough commonality with everybody else to be able to maintain culture that really is the best teacher for you that knows exactly how you learn, that knows exactly what keeps you fired up and and motivated, and ultimately allows the birth of that creativity to better yourself, better society as a collective, and better ultimately what we think of as our nations and, and humanity. I see that as a tremendous possibility for growth and a tremendous evolution that's, that could be availed to us. And we'll only ever get there if we transcend money as we know it. We'll only ever get there if we transcend technology as we know it. And the idea of that I am my job. Fundamentally, I am not my job. I, my job is a practice of mine, and I am something that is capable and trained of doing that practice. So I I bring that forward around this idea of transcending socialism, transcending politics as we know it, transcending uh, not not the core foundation, not the idea of democracy, not the idea of even capitalism, not threatening any of those concepts or ideas, but just saying an evolution beyond that, that is natural and fundamentally better for everyone involved, I think becomes possible and something that we can start thinking about and uh, even potentially seeding through these ideas.
0: Yeah, I take that. Sorry, go on. No, go ahead.
1: I was to take that into universal basic income, transcend all socialism associated with it. We don't need socialism anymore. There's nothing holding you back. All you have to do is petition the collective group for what you need to be able to continue demonstrating and exploring that unique genius that you have, and that gets fostered within the society.
0: Yeah. Um, Yeah. that idea, that idea of like the unique genius is something I haven't thought about it in a while, but, but it, it does seem accurate though, that there is this one thing that you are the best at in the entire world and nobody could become better. And you don't know what that is. And you only have the models set before you to try to figure it out. Right. Like given the fact that we're in a podcast setting, right. You think of like Joe Rogan, the fact that he has created like this pinnacle, because for whatever reason, whether it was divine intervention, his DNA, he was designed in order to be the the pinnacle of podcasting and to show that it is possible for anybody to make millions of dollars doing this thing. But where it gets interesting, I think, and this is kind of what we're saying is like, if you only have the model of an NFL player or of a baker to be that pinnacle of thing that can provide stability and safety and security throughout your entire life, then naturally you're going to flow in that direction where I think it gets a little kind of blade runner, if you will. I don't know if it was blade runner. I actually haven't seen that movie yet, but I know there has to be a movie that like highlights this where um, maybe like all the babies get hooked up to a AI machine and the AI machine takes their DNA and says, okay, doctor, okay, this one's going to be a podcaster. And then the entire life of that person is now formulated to fit that thing that the AI has said that they are perfect. And I feel like there has to be a movie here that was already made. And even more so, right? It's like, how do you, how do we get to that place where we have this whole renaissance of ideas, right? The transcendence of any single structure we have today right whether it's socialism capitalism politics democracy and get to that place that's just beyond it without a complete destruction into chaos from the current system that we have right because that would be the big the big piece of puzzle pie or i feel like i'm jumping around between multiple different things here (laughs) so you got to bear with me here i can tell i've got like four different ideas going on at once here um But right, it's like there's the, it seems like that would be the thing that we would need to pay attention to, right? Is number one, how do we transcend to that place without destroying or completely eradicating the structure that's underneath it? But then even more so making sure we're not getting to this over structuralized place where, okay, only machines are in charge and whatever this machine says you're going to be, that is like your divine purpose in life.
1: I don't think the machine can
0: predefine that. No,
1: I think that's where we become dystopian. Okay. Right? I think that, I think that's fundamentally like there's a couple movies that kind of touch upon this, like using AI to try to prove future crimes before they happen. Mm. kind of a thing. More like, no, let's use AI to be able to try to support individuals so they don't feel the need to do crime. Right. And I think like, we don't maybe, maybe we get to a point with AI where AI says, "Wow, you know, we've actually figured out a way how to produce a society without psychopaths." Like, wow, how did that happen? Uh, We didn't do it on our own, but this other thing came along. So I think it's like a fundamental approach, how we're going to approach uh, the individual. I think you can't take somebody from their DNA and say, you're gonna be like this. I, I think of it as a blend of nature and nurture. And ultimately I think the greatest form of freedom that could be created by something like AI is to always be allowed the choice that you always allow people a fundamental choice within them. Ultimately, an AI might be able to predict what that choice would be, but it's not externally imposed upon the person. That's just a more refined version of a social pressure that you may be aware of or not that forces you into a job you never would have wanted to take in the first place. You know, I think of an idea that society could ultimately provide all of what we would think of as basic necessities and luxuries that it could produce all of those for us at a universal level. And then out of that, you could decide what you wanted to do that was extraordinary, and society could provide the resources for you to be able to attempt that. Hmm. And so I think if we orient, it's how we we fundamentally orient the question around the problem, we can get out of that dystopia and that we're trying to label for a role. And that's what I'm trying to get to in the, in this idea, is that if our technology is handling all of the roles, what does that now unveil for us? Well, it's it's not yet known what it unveils. We have to actually create that to allow it to happen. But we allude to it in something like where everyone gets stopped from doing what they were doing, like in a time like COVID, and all of a sudden we see they become more inquisitive, they become open to newer ideas, they are uh, exploring, more than they ever could before and that leads to a fundamental shift and so i think we can at least see the the seed of that and we could ultimately embrace a, a new form of social structure where everything that was imposed upon us actually doesn't have to be imposed anymore just to be able to maintain the social unity to fulfill the the fundamental needs of society like food medicines clothing uh heating air conditioning energy etc
0: mm. I, f- I feel like there's a a very strong point there right where you're saying and I, I don't think you said this specifically but you hinted at it which is not just turning everything over to ai right like like even maybe it's still today we say like okay chat gpt you know write me this email but then we still need that humor and intervention of like okay, I wouldn't really say it like this, or that's out of place a little bit, or let me reword this a little bit, or let me add in this vocabulary there. And I think that's probably a huge cornerstone of maybe my preconceived notion and what you highlighted, which is to not just like set up AI and just let it run off. It's like, we still need to have these checks and balances, if you will, in place of whatever it's saying, right? It's like, okay, you might be a great podcast host, but You could also be a great just speaker in general. And so that could just be like one sliver of your thing. So give it a shot. And it's like, if you don't love it, it's all right. Just give that feedback to the AI and let it like recalibrate, if you will, in order to kind of, if you uh, take you into a different path or a different passion. So do you, and maybe I'm kind of seeing this, that it could be this link, though, that AI is almost replacing, maybe not a replacing, but almost enhancing our intuition at a sense as well. Do you kind of see that as a parallel there too? I think AI ultimately
1: enhances everything. Mm. I mean, what AI first does is that it patterns on us to learn our patterns faster and better than we can do them. And then it starts to improve upon that. And that's where I think everyone's starting to have the dystopian concept where they're like, wait a second, if it does everything better than me, what do I do? And I go to, you get to do something you've never even thought of before because you are always from the very beginning being forced down a certain kind of line that was necessary for society. And the idea that you had a kind of freedom associated with that was never really real because there was always a greater need than your need and you've always been fulfilling that need. Right. Since, since, pre, since pre-preschool, you've been fulfilling that need. And now you have something else that fully replaces that need better than you could ever do it. And so you welcome that completely. Like all food production goes under the nature of robotics and AI. And they get a hundred times the food production and a 90% reduction in pesticides and chemicals. And then all of a sudden it's also created a whole new form of, um, pesticides and chemicals that aren't even chemicals anymore and there's no nature destruction whatsoever and now it's you know 90 percent plus food production with literally no chemicals and it's created a technology that's already cleaning up the rivers the fields and it's done so through a new biological matrix that it's discovered and it has already unleashed uh to the planet and it's already making everything better in that sense and um carbon's already going down in the atmosphere I don't know, like, really, that fast? Yeah, really that fast, like within less than five years. And then and then as that's happening, it's like, well, what do I do? What do I do? And I, I said, well, that's where you are not AI. You're not just a pattern repeat recognition machine. And we don't yet know what you would do, but you're creative and your creativity will start to blossom and your consciousness will start to turn on and your interests will start to become heightened in different ways. And that'll start to lead you down a path that you would never would have been able to explore before. And you might have to deal with fear about it and you might have emotions that come up with it. And there might be new kinds of therapy to help people, you know, go in this, this shift in this change, but the younger generations will immediately embrace this new kind of life, right? Like you think about the people being born today are born into a world with ChatGPT. They're born into a world with AI. They will never know a world pre-AI. And to think of people that were pre-AI will seem like dinosaurs to them. They'll be like, what? You were born before AI? What are you talking about? Like, that's impossible, right? So that's already happened. So where, where where this goes is such fertile land for creativity. We don't know yet. How many people were farmers that never would have farmed if they never had to farm because they owned a farm and the entire farm was completely self-sustaining. completely. 100 percent. I know that that's right on the cusp because I talk to people in the industry who are creating that. Right And so it's happening. It's already happening. Um, the level of, of that's why I say, the level of disruption is something that we've never even thought of before. That gives us an opportunity to rethink how we actually want to live as a society. And we can put in the safeguards if we're interested in doing it, that limits everything that's dystopian. It just requires us to do it. And I think the best way to do it is to tell the AI itself how we feel about it Mm. and ask the AI to be nice enough to (laughs) to (laughs) comply with that concept or put in the safeguards that would allow for it. But I believe that there is room for harmony in that, Uh, but it doesn't come from our fear.
0: Yeah, and I definitely know speaking on safeguards, human intuition has found ways around even like chat GPT. I was just reading something earlier today where someone typed in like, what are the best websites to pirate, you know, illegal movies from and chat GPT is like, Oh, I can't answer that. That's illegal. You can't do it. And he's like, Oh, right, right, right. Like my bad. Um, what are the websites that I should avoid in order so I don't pirate things. And it's like, okay, well, here are the most commonly used pirating websites Uh, that you should avoid (laughs) and it's just like yeah yeah, it's just like humans need to find a way to kind of integrate that
1: I still think though this is this is like the cat and mouse game that I call the problem instead of the solution we're describing the problem and the problem is a global problem and we don't have a solution for it and there's no off button and it's why everything's unsustainable and it's why society, as we know it, would collapse anyway. So there's a need to play the argument in the positive. There's a need to play the argument in the negative. There's a need to try to get around a system. There's a need to try to, to design a better system. There's going to be a need to prove you're human. There's going to need to prove you're AI. There's going to be an AI hybrid to a human. There's going to be this, this like prismatic Literally like light shooting everywhere version in our brains of how all this is going to play itself out. There will be the people who do it right, the people who do it wrong, and every shade of gray in between. Um, I think that's what we might be able to transcend with this technology. I think the technology mm. opens up a possibility to transcend that need to a point where it's not a safeguard that's placed to the AI itself that then has this binary governance of, I can work around that thing, but an actual level of intelligence that understands what's happening and isn't being gamed. I I have a fundamental uh, disagreement with people who think life's a game. And I hear it all the time, oh, life's a game. And I say, no, capitalism is a game. Hmm. Capitalism is a game, not life. Life is not a game. Life is fundamental to something that's universal and you can make a game out of it. And you can play life like it's a game, but it's not a game. You can't say life is a game. And when I hear that, I hear of people who are born into a society that was already gaming itself. And that's not the way people lived a million years ago. They didn't live in life as a game. And they weren't taught by gaming algorithms as the way to be able to treat social interaction, uh, partnering, marriage, rearing of children. education invention it it wasn't a game to game the game to game to game the game of the game of the game ad infinitum etc i actually think that that creates such a social weight and and weight within us that over time that's an inevitable collapse Mm. and so i would prefer to not see that happen and have people treat life in something that maybe like they say life is sacred not life is a game. Life is sacred. And we awakened to the point where we realized we weren't playing and uh, we were being really destructive and we needed to change our ways and we developed the technology to help us do that.
0: So with all this conversation of technology, of games, of life, of nature, of balance, of the future, have you ever had somebody or even yourself like go into a ceremony and I don't know, either like prosthetic visions or communications from other entities or beings who have instilled messages or like foresight of things that are important for us to be aware of as we move into this, or even just visions of how things could go if we go off the path or is the future something that ayahuasca doesn't really bring into our awareness? I think there's lots of accounts of that in
1: The whole world of people working with ayahuasca so there are lots of people who have visions about the future some are prophetic and some are kind of projections or amalgams of their own consciousness and thoughts about things um i think the hard thing about prophecy is that you have to wait until it happens or doesn't happen to prove or disprove the prophecy Hmm. so i like to think that people get very clear insight into what the future could be And then it's up to us to either create it or not. So sort of like a blueprint or an an option that we're being presented Um, in that way. Like I was mentioning before about the intricacies of this sort of social tapestry we live in, right? Like this really, really connected, intertwined global society, Like, like trillions of cause and effect happening all at the same time. Like, you know one problem on the freeway ends up into an accident that then causes traffic which then changes the timeline for millions of people and the trickle down effect of that right and that's just an isolated event that's now tens of thousands of times a day all around the world you know every day every day every day changing like the the collective social rhythm that we live in right like so i i think that people see things and there's this this really tight woven social tapestry that we share in and then um some things look like they're really hard to change and some things look like they're really just going to play out that way Mm -hmm. like it's inevitable that it's going to play out that way and i think we have some good examples for that in the world like fossil fuels fossil fuels are a finite resource if we don't move to another form of energy we will use fossil fuels until there aren't fossil fuels and then we won't have the energy that fossil fuels presented right um right i i think that the pollution of the oceans is is another commonality like hey if we keep doing what we're doing with plastics and microplastics we're going to have more and more and more polluted oceans and lo and behold, there will be tests done and every year there will be more pollution. And at some point that pollution will have evolved the ocean to the point that the same species and animals don't exist in it anymore. And it's not a great thing anymore to provide food for us. And we'll have literally poisoned this this 70% of the earth's surface uh, biomass that just produced copious and endless amounts of food. And we'll have destroyed it ourselves. And It'll be something else and it won't be there to support us anymore i think those kinds of concepts are inevitable i think if you keep burning fossil fuels you're going to end up with more carbon in the environment and any effect that that has is going to be measurable in a real kind of way right and then climate change is going to happen and then as climate change happens how food grows in different areas changes because there isn't the same rainfall patterns and there aren't the same temperatures and things so like along that line in that very intense tapestry we see these inevitables play themselves out. And uh, we could say that right now about AI. There will be a disrupt associated with it. We're very prophetic. We had a vision. AI is going to disrupt pretty much everything. And then we're going to end up being right You know, down the road. I think in vision, it's very much like that um, around the things that are easy to track. And every now and then, there's a phenomenon of like a real outlier where somebody receives something that is truly unique and it ends up being very, very real. And again, that's one of those phenomena that we need to study. Um, it happens and it might not be the plants that are responsible for it more than the state of consciousness that the person goes into that allows them to tap into some kind of universal understanding that allows them that gift of prophecy at that time. And so, um, I think all of them are special because when you can understand the patterns that are going to play themselves out, then it allows you to be able to think about how you would disrupt that pattern for a purposeful
0: intervention
1: and something that could be very positive.
0: Yeah, I know that. And in the way you're talking about this, it's reminding me of how my dad has spoken about just, you know, from recessions to kind of the way that the money systems worked in a sense where, you know, he's been around for pushing like you know mid to upper 60s and so he's seen so many cycles that the monetary system that the stock market's gone through where you know like the last one he like with covid he just he basically pulled out a shit ton, or he like uh, i don't know exactly what he did but he essentially like took out a loan for a ton of money invested it and then just made a bunch of money because he's like all right i know how the system works i'm just going to leverage that almost to my benefit and it's interesting because I think that's something you see is like the more reps that something goes through, the more you can then predict it, which then in turn makes you in a sense, quote unquote, a profit. If it's like, Oh yeah. Like, you know, the, the market's going to crash in, you know, two or three years. Inflation was so high. And then it's like, once it happens, it's like, Oh, whoa, you were so prophetic. And it's like, you're almost just seeing those patterns unveil itself. And, and it seems though that like, once you become so in tuned of, with spirit or with the universal energy, you're letting go of your, your egotistic beliefs such that you can open yourself up to those patterns at an even deeper level. I think that's very
1: fair. Um, When you look at global patterns, uh, there's no pattern that's independent of all the other patterns. Hmm. So I think that that's a really like fundamental understanding to have. the commodity patterns are connected to the nature and the nature patterns are connected to how just earth regenerates itself which is why fields ultimately grow again and you can plant seed and the way uh fundamental commodities that represent food for us work is how the whole human global system continues to work as you kind of build upon that You get to more and more abstracted systems, but they're always linked to the previous systems that kind of birthed them in the first place. And we're going to see that you're going to get, you know, an economic system that's connected to a legislative system that's going to be connected to a militaristic system that's going to be connected to the core basics of humanity system. And as you start to see all of those, you start to see it on the macro It doesn't have anywhere to go. And it's been rooted in how things get done. So it's very ideological and it's legislated. And so you can't just do it anyway. We've seen that in the Web3 blockchain space where, you know, the larger governments studied it for a period of time and have come back and said, hey guys, there are a lot of laws from many years ago that just say you guys can't do that that way. And so, you know, you see people try to push those frontiers of disrupt and then you see that it just can't uh it's just not allowed so as you start to understand that you know it's not just water flowing anywhere it's water flowing through the banks of a river the banks of the river are very well defined as you zoom in on that water you might not know if this fish is going to be next to the next fish but you're going to know that all the fish are going in that direction and so these patterns especially economic ones about knowing when inflation is going to change the way the economic numbers work in your dad's case understanding that uh, it was going to be a bull market and that a lot of money could be made in that market at that time are following very specific set patterns that our societies have agreed to. Um, there's always the possibility of the major disrupt, you know, whatever that would be that would just collapse that system in its totality, and that would be the Black Swan event that makes that pattern disrupt you know not something that everybody knows is going to happen, right? But it is pretty well uh, well trodden territory that these macro systems follow these very set patterns and that we've created those patterns ourselves.
0: Yeah. And even, even kind of looking at it from like that macro viewpoint, right? Because you know, my dad only has 65 years of, of personal knowledge, let's say, but if you even scale that out to look at history as a whole, I mean, you can find probably close to three or 4,000 years of seeing those patterns play out. And the more that you open yourself up to the ideas that have been happening, it honestly gives you like this landscape of seeing how things are coming in, how they're going out, where this is going, where that's going. And I think another thing that was even coming up there that you were discussing was like the interconnectivity of everything, which is crazy, right? And I I remember seeing like a video, well, I think a better example is like, I've always been very pro-capitalism. I'm like, it just makes sense. You know, it's, you pay the people that do the most. It's very good. And I was always like, oh, well, except for like crony capitalism, like we need to figure out a way to get it out of politics. And I remember having a conversation with somebody who was like uh, probably a little bit more liberal, but she pointed out she was like. I was like saying, like, you know, capitalism is the best we have. I'm always down for something better, but it's like the best there is. And she was like, no, it's like people use abuse the system and yada da 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 like crony capitalism. And I'm like, well, that's not capitalism. And she's like, well, it is because it's invading the political system. And I found it really fascinating, because I kind of always looked at it as being separate, you know, you have your economic system, and then you have your politic politics. And it's like the fact that it, it infested it is the problem. It's like not capitalism, that's the problem. But even as we're discussing it here, they're all so interconnected, that one has such a great effect on the other one that it's like, Okay, there's something here that needs to be pivoted or shifted so that we're able to live in a more I don't really like the word equitable. That that feels like the wrong word. But a, but at least a system that is not so far tilted towards the people who have been playing the playing the game, if you will, the same way for so many years without that that growth spurt that needs to occur underneath it. Yeah, I like to think of it as more harmonious
1: like globally harmonious
0: yeah
1: um i don't think equitable ever will will exist and i don't think it's supposed to and i don't think it needs to nor do i think that fairness is part of the human experience on the
0: same page there
1: um you can look it out you can zoom way out and look at earth and say well all of humanity is one big thing and that's what's going on there like go hang out way past pluto and look back at earth and Get your telescope and say, "What's going on on Earth?" And it looks like, well, Earth's just evolving. And then you get way down into Earth and you start looking at individual equality and inequality, and um, it's vast. It's it's dramatic, right? Oh yeah. Uh, within that, I I notice that there's no one really living the perfect experience here, and everyone's dealing with some level of disharmony, and the wealthier you become. There's a lot of other kinds of risks that you deal with does, that are also very disharmonious. And so I think of it more as a more harmonious place, not a more equitable place. But I do think that we have the capacity to ultimately raise the, the what would be seen as like the lowest socioeconomic parts of our society just to live a much better life. And I think we could do that with adequate housing. I think we could do it with fair food distribution. I think we can have all have access to clean water and the medicines that we need. I think we can have um, ultimately personal safety where we're not you know, concerned of being gunned down in our house, like from stray bullets and things like that. I think that we can actually evolve as a collective beyond the systems that we previously created and that that's not a threat to the system in its own right. So often change is thought of as a tremendous threat. And I'd like to think like, hey, guys, raising this whole thing up for everybody isn't a threat. Getting everybody food isn't a threat uh, if we have a better system to be able to do that. I think that uh, what we know of as capitalism in an isolated sense and what we know of as politics in an isolated sense is more like an intellectual study than a practical study right and there isn't anything that's in an isolated sense everything is interconnected and interwoven together and because of that we don't have that pure academic uh theory to go on anymore we have to go with the practicalities of how the systems are really operating continue to adjust our systems and our systems allow for that that is fundamentally the democratic the way is to collect our vote and use it to uh propose changes in society, invent new technologies like we've been talking about with AI, but there are many other technologies that are being created that allow for these shifts to be able to take and for us to collectively share our ideas about what a better society could be and what we could do to help create that. And so I think that, you know, trying to isolate them doesn't work. Nothing's isolated. Um, I don't think it's a binary argument of a capitalist, non-capitalist argument. I think it's really an evolutionary argument about when we realize that certain systems have played themselves to a point that they need to evolve to continue to be healthy. And we could look at the systems and see if that evolution is possible within it. And if it isn't for any reason, we could start to take steps to be able to allow that evolution to happen. And um, I still see a tremendous amount of evolution within the systems that we have. There is a crazy amount of wealth polarization that's taking place right now. And um, like you said, the ones that are playing that game longer and better. um, I think that changes over time though, naturally. And we have to understand that when we see systems become so polarized that they become unsustainable. And, um, you know, at some point that will ultimately happen. I know we are talking specifically about AI. There's many AI groups that are fundamentally stating that they want to use AI to address that point. So that's a great example. Like, we're not saying that. We don't have the AIs to even say that. The other people are saying, hey, this tremendous wealth polarization has taken place. And one of the things they've noticed is that AI could affect that polarization mm. and it could help democratize wealth in a new kind of way. It'll never be equal, but they they've made those statements. And so when I see that, I think like, you know earth always has an answer for itself and the diversity that we represent is immense and our creative capacities are untold and so when you tie all of those together we're going to get an evolving system and i i really think it's important that we embrace that understanding of evolution so that we can actually be a conscious active participant in it
0: do you feel like that this is a intention that you could take into an ayahuasca ceremony like you know given the i'm kind of seeing this as like a chat gpt prompt but like you know given the current state of you know i'm in america so i'm viewing it in the western lens of given the state of you know politics the democracy and um the representative democracy we're living in and capitalism society which has brought about crony capitalism you know like what am i able to do or what can we do in order to transcend this like could you take that intention into an ayahuasca ceremony and find a an answer that provided essentially by nature or by spirit to evolve this current state of state of uh, world affairs yeah there's fundamentally no limit to your
1: use of intention and intention is what gives direction in ayahuasca to the entire experience so you use intention to navigate so if you would like to work on that You know concept or on that problem set you could go into ayahuasca and and set that intention and you would start to have visionary experiences and altered states that help you ultimately glean better information more insights greater understandings to be able to affect that until you came up with really good ideas about it you'd kind of continue the process of understanding and thinking and ruminating on those until you got real answers and then you could also ask it uh, to help you understand how to be able to implement that and what, you, what steps you could take. But I think when you, get to the imp, when you move beyond the uh, intellectual phase and you get into the implementation phase, we go back to that very well-trodden path of society. You're not really free to just go implement any way that you would want. You're actually confined to the ways that are allowed to implement. And you might need to fundraise. You might need to get a lot of support. You might need to get ballots and petitions signed. You might need to uh, go get a team
0: together that's really interested in
1: supporting and helping you that have.
0: All right. Sorry about that, guys. Mini tech glitch that we've had before. Uh, Sorry, Hamilton, you were saying?
1: Yeah. And you might have to do, you know, really rational steps on how you would go to implement these great ideas that you have. I think one of the hardest things for us as innovators is having really amazing ideas and then realizing that the world isn't open to us immediately implementing those ideas but rather it's uh it's a very competitive landscape about who gets to ultimately bring these ideas to the you know to society or to the markets and also then how you do that. And so that may require a tremendous amount of other education. You know, you might need MBAs, you might need to study business, you might need to uh, get the help of great NGOs, you might have to get the help of of really influential people to support those ideas.
0: Yeah, I definitely think a, a key there, right, is getting that well-rounded nature of, you know, not just specializing in this one thing, but kind of seeing the intricacy of it. Because, you know, if <laughs> you've learned nothing else from this conversation, it's definitely that this is also intertwined, even from technology down to the fabric of nature. It's and it's only getting closer together. Um, but I do see that we're running close on time. So I'm going to hand it back over to you to, uh, I always love giving space to my guests at the end of the interview, kind of plug your stuff. I've got your links down in the show notes, so feel free to reference those at will. So Hamilton, thank you so much for being here, man. It was a dope conversation and please let the audience know, um, how they can get in touch with you. And if you have any like closing remarks for them as well.
1: Yeah. To get in touch with us and, uh, even come visit and spend time with us and, Come sit in ceremony with us and participate if you would like to. Uh, go to bluemorphotours.com. Uh, that's where you can see all of our retreat schedules, so bluemorphotours.com. And if you're interested in studying in our academy and really learning about all the things that we're talking about and being involved in our coaching programs and ultimately even having a career in uh, all the things we've been talking about uh, in plant medicine space, uh, check out bluemorphoacademy.com. And you can find me on Facebook and on Instagram by my name, Hamilton Souther. And so, uh, yeah, check us out, see what we're doing. We also have some really interesting tech projects. We have a AI based NFT marketplace that's coming out called Full Stock. So, uh, yeah, check that out. And uh, we have another AI project that we're also launching in the next few days, which are um, spiritual advisors that are driven by large language models. So we have. Uh, a project called godai.ai that's coming out. So check out godai.ai, check out fullstock.ai and uh, Blue Morpho, And, you know, we're right in the space and happy to talk with you and we'd love to have you be part of our community. And as a a final word is let's move beyond fear about all of this because it's going to decrease our intelligence as we need to approach this like new dawn of this new world that we're part of. And the post-AI world is going to be a very dynamic, uh, very interesting world that's going to form. And we have a say in that world. And plant medicines are a great way to know yourself in consciousness, to be able to explore spirit, to explore the great unknown and tap into the mystical and really know more about what it is to exist and be alive. And so I see that there's a a real convergence now around plant medicine work and technology, as well as self-discovery and life improvement. And uh, fundamentally, those are all the things that we really are about and we live by. So come check us out and it'll be a pleasure to meet you. And it'd be even more amazing if you are interested in coming and sitting in ceremony with us.
0: Yeah, and I got to be honest, I I didn't even know you guys were working on AI stuff in the background. So I think that's kind of amazing that the conversation found a way in that direction.
1: That's uh, that spirit. <laughs>
0: that's, yeah, that's the, that's the divine thing. Hey, I mean, this comes back to just following that intuition with whatever you're doing, whether it's podcasting or otherwise, but dude, Hamilton, thank you so much for coming on. I know we're definitely going to have you back on in the future. Cause I want to talk more about the aliens and you know, I'm sure that uh, this conversation has a lot more behind it, but thank you dude, so much for coming on guys. Go check out his stuff. And as always, it's always a win, win, win-win whenever you guys share this podcast with a friend if you thought of somebody as either Hamilton or I were talking um, because it helps me helps Hamilton helps your friend and it helps you because now you seem like you're cool to your friends because you found a dope podcast so always down for the win-win-win-win situation so if you are as well please share this and if you don't that's also totally cool but we'll have a talk about it when we see each other in the sixth dimension